Now, the, the situation, as you might hear, is that the radio station has now been um, taken over. Um, we have three Argentines at the moment. British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. The Argentines had landed at approximately 6 a.m. Falklands time, 10 a.m. our time. Lindsay, can I just say how fucking good it feels to be in front of this mic again? It really does. It's been a while, hey? Yeah. We uh, took a little hiatus. Oh, a fair bit of a hiatus. We had good reason for it. We appreciate your understanding. I feel like we always say that, but it is true. Life does really get in the way sometimes, you know? But we're back. That's what matters right now. Yep. Back with another large episode. I'm starting to think we're like really beginning to fall into that Dan Carlin mode of like yeah, well, infrequent but long ass releases. I'll uh, I'll feel that way when we start releasing like six hour long episodes, so which we haven't done yet. Longest episode I think we did was like three and a half. We hours. might not be on his level yet, but I feel like we're approaching. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, my name is Jonah. I'm Lindsay. Welcome to all of our new listeners and to our previous listeners. Welcome back. This is Panastoria, um, you know, just in case you're a new listener yeah. and didn't know what we were tuning into. <laughs> uh, a history podcast where we talk about pretty much everything. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Falklands War, because I bet you didn't really know much about that. Yeah. I know, I actually didn't. <laughs> and the more I research this war, is real. it's like, this was a very British war. Oh, so British. <laughs> You'll understand in a moment. So British. Just so pointless. Well... Yeah, I don't know. It's a, lot, it's, a, it's a lot of things. It's just very British. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Spoiler alert, it was pointless. Yeah, it was definitely a pointless war, uh, which definitely means it's a British war. It was very much just about defending the Empire, really, which is, again, a very British thing. I, I guess we decided to talk about the Falklands War. To be honest, like the most I really knew about it and how it like crossed my radar, because, again, it wasn't alive. Not that that's an excuse, because you know we study history, but it's not really that well talked about as a conflict, just because... For the most part, I was pretty. It was pretty small, short-lived, and for much of the world, really didn't matter. I don't think. <laughs> Seemed like a debate about strategic space and potentially matter, cheap. Matter There's a to, lot of jokes. Yeah, mattered to the Falklanders, of course. It mattered to everybody involved in the conflict, but to everybody else, it wasn't like it. It did get some attention, but it's it 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 hasn't lasted in history as you know a great conflict because for the most part it's kind of small but it it did obviously have and still does have a lasting impact and like i really knew more about it from you know watching top gear and seeing james and jeremy and clark uh richard get chased out of argentina uh and that's to me kind of why i wanted to do this episode to be honest with you it's just like um and this is an episode i wanted to do for a while and i was like oh let's do it and then we like Lindsay would look it up and be like oh but the anniversary is not till it, it was 82 and i'm like fuck but now it's uh it's actually while we're talking about this it is literally the anniversary of it going on and today that we're recording this is the anniversary of a certain major event that happened in the conflict which i will will get to in a bit but yeah so um we're just gonna get we're not we're gonna skip uh housekeeping and get right into it because honestly we don't have that much housekeeping it's been so long no <laughs> <laughs> so after the second world war the whole you know world was saying come on europe give these countries back come on you know we've got a bloody war let's give them back britain what 
<laughs> What's that behind your back? Oh, it's India and a number of other countries. <laughs> Give them back. Oh, all right. There's that one. There's that one. There's that one. Falkland Islands. Oh, we need the Falkland Islands for strategic sheep purposes. Much of the early history of the Falklands is unknown and mostly speculation. It is believed prehistoric Fugian, Fugians, I apologize, from Patagonia had visited the island, but it is unknown if they ever settled there. Furthermore, there is no general consensus of when the first Europeans dis discovered the island, with some claiming it went back to the 16th century. Honestly, this was one of the most annoying bits to research because nobody has a definitive answer. Yeah. The first known recording of the Falklands occurred in 1690 by English Captain John Strong. Strong had been commissioned by Anthony Carey, the fifth Viscount of Falkland, who was treasurer of the Navy at the time, to search for a Spanish shipwreck off the coast of Chile. It wouldn't be until a century later in 1764 until the French established settlements on the now boringly named East Falkland. They named their settlement the the Ile Malouine, which is where the Argentine name Ila Malvinas comes from. Oh yeah, so just to be clear, um, to our Argentine listeners, which I know we do have a few, we will be referring to it as the Falklands, just for simplicity's sake. Yeah. Please don't denote that as a necessary. I'll get, to, I'll get to that at the end. <laughs> <laughs> the following year, British Captain John Byron landed on the now boringly named West Falkland. Both settlements were unaware of each other's existence until a chance meeting. Yeah, literally, they just happened to run into each other. And were like, oh, well, this is, this is awkward. Going back a bit. On June 7th, 1494, Spain and Portugal, under the mediation of Pope Alexander VI, signed the Treaty of Tordesillas. This treaty would end territorial disputes between Spain and Portugal. Alexander, in 1492, declared all New World lands, less of the 38th, to be of Castilian or Spanish lands, and all lands east to be Portuguese. The aforementioned treaty changed this to the 46th parallel. Literally, he just took a map and drew a line down and said, okay, everywhere everywhere to the west of this line is Spanish. Everywhere to the east of this line is Portuguese. Colonialism is dumb. Sure is, yes. <laughs> In 1766, the Spanish requested the French hand over the possession of the islands under the treaty. The Spanish offered to compensate Louis de Bougainville, who, the man who established the settlement at his own expense. Being on good terms with Spain and not seeing it as a big loss, the French agreed to hand over their claim. In 1770, the Spanish demanded the British hand over the por their portion of the island, again under the treaty. The British, not giving a shit about Pope decrees since 1534, refused. On June 10th, 1770, Don Juan Ignacio de Madariga, excuse my pronunciation, the Spanish commander in the Falklands returned with 1,400 Spanish sailors from Argentina. Already embroiled with discontent from the 13 colonies, the British gave up their claim of the island. British forces fully withdrew in 1776. I wonder why that year specifically. Hmm. 
Curious. The British left behind a plaque which declared their ownership of the island, um, which would, of course, not be honored because it's it's a goddamn plaque. <laughs> Literally, they just left this like stone in the ground with like writing that this is British. Of course, they did. Yeah. Spanish rule of the island lasted until the Napoleonic Wars. Following Napoleon's invasion of Spain, plus the growing unrest in South the South American colonies, the Spanish withdrew from the island. The Falklands would spend mu much time essentially unpopulated, save for some fishermen and some gauchos, along with many penguins and now feral cattle. Now, gauchos are like... South American cowboys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're extremely... It's, it's, it's like not like when you think of like cowboys in the traditional like Western American sense. They're like essentially... Similar idea in that they are like they raise livestock and are essentially cowboys, but it's a bit different. Yeah, obviously. they <laughs> have like but... they have a very well, rather nomadic lifestyle yeah. because they constantly change where um, cattle is grazed. Yeah, yeah, or whatever livestock they have. Soon after its independence, the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata took interest in the islands. Now that is name is a mouthful. Mm. Hamburg-born merchant Louis Vilnay believed the Falklands would make for good fishing area, and he was right, and was also interested in claiming the feral cattle roaming the island. While the gauchos were skilled cattlemen, the terrain on the island made it practically impossible to wrangle said cattle using their traditional methods. Vilnay's first two attempts failed, but prior to his third, the United Provinces government granted the, all the East Falklands lands to Vernet should he, his exhibition prove a success. This meant he had access to and rights over any of the resources found there. He managed to create a monopoly on the seal hunting taking place on and around the island. As a result, the United Provinces made Vernet's governor, or they made Vernet governor in all but name of the Falklands. He was known as the civil and military com commandant. This obviously angered the British, and the consulate in Buenos Aires lodged a formal complaint, which is the most British thing ever, first yeah. of many in this episode. Yeah. In 1831, Vilnay was enraged by American fishing and hunting ships encroaching on his monopoly and into territorial waters. The United Provinces provided Vilnay with weapons to protect their claim of the island, and three American ships were captured along with all their crew. The United States entrusted Captain Silas Duncan with the USS Lexington to travel to the islands and investigate. What is agreed is that the Americans took seven prisoners and charged them with piracy after the ships were found plundered and re-outfitted. The preceding events are dependent on who you ask. The Americans claim the Lexington only destroyed weapons and powder, while many of the settlers state much of the settlement was destroyed by the bombardment, which, you know, is probably true. Hmm. On January 13, 1833, a naval task force led by James, Captain James Onslow returned to the Falklands. Argentine Major Jose Maria Pinedo, despite wanting to resist, could see he and his forces were hopelessly outnumbered. Furthermore, much of his forces were British mercenaries in the first place, who, you know, didn't want to fight British. Since then, the Falklands have been mostly under British rule. As of 2012, the majority of the population, which is about 59%, identifies Falkland Islander, also known as Falklanders, or rarely and often as an insult, as Kelpers, which is after the vast amount of kelp growing around the islands. 
Most Falklanders are descendants of the Welsh and Scottish settlers during the early British colonial years. While English is by far the most predominant language on the Falklands, the vernacular uses a number of Spanish words. For example, horse colors are often used with the Spanish term, as well as Spanish words for horse gear. Hmm. Um, so at this point, I was going to talk about Juan Perón, but I ended up with like six pages worth of notes, and then I tried to cut that down and ended up with three. So we're not going to be talking about Perón. The three pages... <laughs> Was the abridged version. The abridged version so, is not very abridged. No. So, honestly, we're going to be doing our own, a whole episode on Perón because uh, I got to say, you thought Baathism was a confusing ideology? Wait till you hear about Peronism, also known as judicialism. Fortunately, Thatcherism is a real easy ideology to understand. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's what? Neoliberal. Or conservative. It depends. Anyway. We'll talk about so that So all you really need to know about Perón is he was a... He was president of Argentina for a while. Uh, he was... Extru- uh, he was... We're going to be doing this as we usually do. He, he Basically, he was the Huey Long character of South America. Because mm. he really was. Ext- a a ma- major populist. Extremely popular with the people. But also quite authoritarian in fact he was a lot more authoritarian than Huey Long was well yeah I mean I think that kind of is obvious you'd think it was obvious but there's still people out there that are like oh Huey Long was like the Hitler of America it's like go listen to our episode man an apt thing is that especially North Americans not going to specify Americans because Canadians are just bad too like to compare everybody to Hitler so (laughs) and it's usually not Ever. At all correct. Correct. Perón was, I've heard him say, I've heard him call, be called a fascist. I don't agree with that terminology. I mean, I can understand the argument there, but I do not agree with it. He did have fascist, fascist sympathies. Like he had sympathies towards Italy and Germany, but he was not too happy with Germany because he was um, not anti-Semitic. Mm. In fact, he took in like I, I mean, Argentina has a bad rap of, like, you know, taking, taking in all the Nazis. Nazi war criminals. But yeah. they actually took in more Jewish refugees yeah. during the war than they ever did Nazi war criminals. So, yeah, think I of mean, it what you will. I mean, I think it's kind of, it's a bit like Sweden in the sense where, like, yeah, like, they, for every notoriously good or bad thing they did, they did something good or bad to counterbalance it. You know, like, Sweden let the Nazis go through there and they sold them heavy water, but they also rescued a ton of Jews. So, like, it... You know, like the, it, it, I don't want to say it balances out, but it kind of, kind of, <laughs> but it kind of does, right? It gives that appearance of like, it's hard to see some of these countries as wholly good or wholly bad, right? Like yeah. there's, it's, it's two-sided for sure. <laughs> yeah. The other thing you need to know about Perón is in Argentina, you either basically worship him or you, or you despise his guts. Or jail. <laughs> no, nah, not today, but I'm talking about today. <laughs> okay. Like his legacy, because his okay. legacy is very, has Honestly, it is his legacy is severely complicated, Argentina. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'll get to that when we do his episode. But, um, yeah, he was a very pol- extremely polarizing figure. He was staunchly anti-communist, but like Huey Long, he believed that these reform, like improving workers' lives and shit like that, like social yeah. reforms, were essential to preventing communism from taking over. Um, he also really hated the U.S. and capitalism because he said capitalism was exploiting Argentin- Argentina and Argentinians, which, yeah. 
But yeah, you either really love them or you really hate them. There are people on the far left who loved them. There are people on the far right who loved them. And then there are people who are in between who loved them. I feel like, I like I, we'll obviously talk about Peronism when we talk about him, but it seems to be like Baathism in the sense where it does like kind of unite principles of the left and the right. So it's a bit easy to see why both sides both vilify and the Worst, opposite. Yeah, yeah, um, vilify and um, <laughs> the words beaut- beautify. Yeah, like hold up and just like, you know, like there's, I can see why both sides would both have like a love and a hate for that person. Yeah. And uh, like, just like, my base understanding of the idea. Yeah. And like Bothism, it's what's, it's, you can't place Peronism on either the, le- like, definitively on the left. It doesn't fit the spectrum that we typically No, it's definitely, there are left on. wing aspects of it and there are right wing it's aspects. It's kind of like of a Venn it. diagram of yeah, like left and right principles and the, it's somewhere in the. Yeah. The correct term for that is syncretic. Mm. But I, I mean, like, he was very authoritarian. He would crack down on dissidents and yeah. stuff like that on the left and the right. Yeah. So probably the only person who was more popular than him in Argentina was his wife, Evita, <laughs> who was like really instrumental in bringing like feminist ideology to Peronism. And like, interesting. she was an extremely intelligent woman and Juan trusted her deeply hmm. and adored her deeply. That's cool. And but um and like when, so when she died rather unexpectedly of cancer I believe I'm um I I'm just hearing a bunch of people shouting at me <laughs> I apologize uh, I know we've gotten things wrong on this before but yeah anyway so uh, when she died suddenly it just was like a na- massive mourning for yeah her so like people who hated Juan Prone loved Davida <laughs> kind of thing so anyway um. Long story short, he was ousted in a coup at one point because, believe it or not, the military hated him. The Argentine military hated him. He was ousted and exiled. Mm -hmm. But because he was so popular, they actually invited him back and he ended up becoming president again. And then died of a heart attack a year later, Mm. leaving basically no heir except for his new wife, Isabel Martinez Cartas, who was not like Evita at all. She was... Not intelligent. In fact, she was an imbecile, basically. And also very naive and easily manipulated. Mm. And in fact, the de facto ruler of Argentina at the time of her presidency was, and I'm not joking, a legit esoteric Nazi. Mm. Sick. So people who believe, people who don't know what esoteric Nazism is, it's basically mixing in mysticism, like mysticism with, Nazi idea. A lot of Hitler's actual beliefs, to be honest, because Hitler was very much into the occult. And oh, he was, like but not as much as like like. No, like it takes it further, but yeah. it's like you could. The basis is definitely there. The person sure. you well, would associate, yeah, the person you associate with esoteric Nazism, like the face of it, is Heinrich Himmler. Himmler. Yeah. <laughs> so she basically was the fact. That the lucky thing for Argentina is that her rule, quote unquote, did not last that long, mm. because, yeah, unlike her husband, she was. Not popular. Not popular and <laughs> did not possess natural leadership qualities. She was she was a dull woman. I, do, I, I don't... It's kind of a wet blanket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I apologize for saying dull woman. I just didn't know how else to put it. She was a dull human being. Yeah. So, yeah, she found herself under the heavy influence of one Jose Lopez Uriga, a straight-up Nazi and esoteric Nazi. He ran a group called the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, or the AAA, which was extremist and a violent death squad. Like they would just literally yeah. willy-nilly go out and kill people who were suspected of being leftists. Good times. Good times. Yeah. D- 
During their act active time, it is believed they are responsible for between 700 and 1,100 forced disappearances, quote-unquote. They claimed to only target violent Marxists, but they also included left Peronists and members of the Radical Civic Union as well, which was a centrist party in Argentina. Scholars, professors, priests were also among those killed or, you know, as they put it, disappeared. Their actions resulted in left-wing opposition groups to become more violent in their actions. With the growing violence, Isabel declared a state of emergency following the murder of Alberto Villar, the police chief of Buenos Aires, and his wife. On February 5th, 1975, the military launched Operation Independence, a brutal crackdown on leftist groups and alleged sympathizers. At this time, Isabel's regime turned against the labor movement, which was still amongst the largest supporters of Peronism. At the same time, Lopez was, was, uh, was filling positions within the State Intelligence Secretariat, or SIDE, with those loyal to him. <laughs> These people were open fascists and neo-Nazis. As a result of the crackdown, instability skyrocketed on Argentina. Eventually, this culminated in a fiscal crisis, which never bodes well for national leaders. No. Among the leading anti-Peronists were the Argentine military. Furthermore, the United States was unhappy with Peronist anti-American attitudes, as well as their ties to the labor movement, because, you know, that's communism. So... Question, though. Yes. <clears throat> is this, like, new kind of government that's happening right now a bit of, like, is it is it kind of, like, bastardizing Peronism? Or is it, okay. Or is it, like... No, it's basically, um... Or, like, it's, like, modified Peronism? Modified. Modified. It's definitely, like, this is kind of when... We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in another episode, but there was a schism within okay. Peronism, yeah. and this is kind of the start I just want to make it... I just wanted to make it clear if there's, like, yeah, there is, like, a... When Peronism with... Juan Perón, and then there's Peronism. Yeah, after. basically Juan Perón did not plan for an Argentina without Perón, and mm -hmm. it's still made a it's still yeah. kind of a mess in Argentina today. I think to be honest, that happens a lot when the ruling power, who is authoritative, <laughs> doesn't make plans for the future. Yeah, this isn't them. the first time we've talked about something like <laughs> <'Cause>, this. No, <laughs> or the third. <laughs> I think it's like every episode. Yeah, at least. almost. Yeah. <laughs> Following the success of Operation Independence, and with the help of the United States, of course. The military launched a coup against Isabella on March 24th, 1976. And I actually wrote this bit down on the anniversary of when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> at around 1 a.m. Isabel was arrested and placed under house arrest at her home in El Meziador. At 3.10 a.m., all television broadcasts were interrupted by the military announcing they had seized control of the country, declaring martial law and a state of siege. This, this also isn't like the first time we've ever no. mentioned something like this. Uh, military personnel flooded the streets, and throughout the following day, mass arrests began. High-ranking Peronist officials in government, union leaders, students, intellectuals, and activists were detained en masse. This began an er the era in Argentina known as the National Reorganization Process. The NRP began the process of dismantling the Peronist cult of personality. Opposition was heavily oppressed, strikes were banned, and unions were targeted for suppression. Argentina's economy was left in the hands of Jose Martinez de Hoz. His main focus was to fight the skyrocketing inflation gripping the country. He adopted more a more globalist economic policy, implementing free trade and more laissez-faire methods. Furthermore, he eliminated the price and exchange controls introduced by Perón. 
By 1977, wage shares dropped to 38.1% of national income, the lowest it had been in just over 40 years. This was the result of increases in food prices and elimination of welfare subsidies. Government workers' wages were frozen and tax indexing was adopted. Martinez managed to negotiate a $1 billion loan from the International Monetary Fund and Chase Manhattan Bank. This helped to boost the reserves and eventually led to a $650 million surplus. Martinez diverted the income lowered from other sectors towards farming. This improved the 1976-77 harvest. The good didn't last, however. Argentina's foreign debt saw a four times increase and the upper and lower class gap grew dramatically. Argentina's currency, the peso le, saw a tenfold devaluation. This sparked one of the worst economic crises in Argentina's history. The Argentina itself saw three prominent factions arise. The first, led by Admiral Admiral Emilio Macera, sought to create a new form of populism, quote-unquote, Peronism without Peron. Macera sought to to use the threat of guerrilla attack, or quote-unquote, international Marxist conspiracies, end quote, as a means to rally the people around the junta. The second was led by Generals Carlos Suez Masson and Mario Menendez. It is also the clique Martinez belonged to. Their rallying point was extreme anti-Peronist sentiment. It advocated for the junta to remain indefinitely in order to combat and eradicate all aspects of Peronism, unions, and leftist organizations in the country. The third was led by Argentine President Jorge Rafael Videla and Army Commander-in-Chief Roberto Viola. They saw Martinez's reforms as only a temporary measure, part of part one of a series of economic recovery phases with eventual political liberalization. Another growing issue was the fact much of Argentina's state corporations were now under control of various military administrators. Now that they were in position of power and economic gain, they were opposed to the plan to privatize these industries. Of course they were. The dirty war had already begun by this time. The junta took power, starting while Perón was still alive. As stated earlier, it targeted left, far-left organizations and their alleged supporters. Now that the junta was in power, all that really changed was that Peronists were added to the list. During the nine years, the dirty war resulted in the quote-unquote disappearance of between 9,000 and 30,000 people, often through brutal methods. One method became known as the death flights. Detainees were drugged, forced onto transport planes, stripped of all their clothing, then flown either into the Rio, over the Rio de la Plata or the Atlantic Ocean, where they were thrown out of the airplane and most likely drowned or died of exposure. Or, you know, died from falling out of the fucking airplane. That too, yeah. <laughs> Which honestly is the death I would hope for at that yeah. point, because like, I don't want to survive if I hit the ground. Yeah, yeah. Many more people were detained, tortured, often raped, and then forced into exile under suspicion of supporting the targeted organizations. Exile was a mercy. Yeah. A low estimate of 500 children of the disappeared were taken by the junta's authorities. Evidence has shown many of these children, some of whom were actually born in captivity, had their birth records forged and were adopted by government and military officials. I really highly recommend a movie called The Official Story, which was actually... Made in Argent and yeah, it was made in Argentina around the time that this junta was dissolving. Mm-hmm. That is about this exact thing. 
Interesting. It is a great movie. <laughs> Very hard to watch at times. Is it a documentary it is, or a movie? It's a movie. Okay. Like it's a it's a dramatization of what happened. Yeah. Okay. As of 2010, only 102 are believed to have been positively identified, and there were probably like tens of thousands that have lives that there are like they never knew. Well, yeah, and they they have no idea that they're these disappeared. Yeah. With internal conflict decreasing by 1977, Masera and his faction needed to shift to alternate methods to gain popularity. They adopted a more nationalistic approach. This culminated in focusing attention on the dispute between Argentina and Chile over the Beagle Channel in Tierra del Fuego, which is still a hotbed of topic between Argentina and Chile today. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to go there. Me too. The end of the world. In hopes of settling the dispute in their favor, Argentina enlisted the help of the UK to mediate negotiations <laughs> and to be a third party to survey the area. Uh, this move backfired a bit as the British ruled mostly in favor of Chile. Yeah. This caused public outcry, of which Mazera seized upon to rally support. Chile now became an enemy to rally behind and increased popular support for an, indef- an indefinite junta. Historian David... Rock called this Bonapartism in its raw form. In reality, Mazera had no intention to co- of completely antagonizing Chile, and both countries entered talks which progressed smoothly. During the Junta's existence, they actually cooperated with Pinochet's internal conflict through intelligence sharing on guerrilla organizations. By October 1978, the talks were on the verge of ending peacefully, where both sides would be happy. At this time, Mazera increased rhetoric against the British, whom he blamed for the quote-unquote tensions with Chile. In this rhetoric, he focused much of his attention on a little island to the south. Yeah, so we'll leave Argentina there for a moment and talk about the other uh, important kind of leader at the time of the the UK, the other combatant in this this whole situation. So Good old Maggie. Yeah, so... Uh, Margaret Thatcher, or Maggie Thatcher, she's a million names, was Prime Minister of, of uh, the United Kingdom from 1979 until the 90s. It's one of the longest actually running governments in the UK history. But we'll talk more about her like background and kind of who she was later. She's a really complicated figure uh, and deserves a little bit more time than we have to dedicate to her here today. So just kind of like talk more about her policies and how it's related to the Falklands. But like I said, talking about Thatcher is really complicated, actually kind of for more than just the fact that obviously like her legacy is complicated, but just the fact that she's the first female prime minister and sort of all that goes into discussing like women in politics and the fact that she was also like a ruthless conservative at the same time. Um, <laughs> it's just like, it's kind of a lot, but she definitely, there's no denying that she faced a lot of sexism as being a woman in politics will do, but primarily Margaret Thatcher was known for many things, but one of them was being a complete workaholic. Like even her banter was about politics. She just like seized onto politics and never let it go. And this was like a theme of her whole life, really like growing up. Her her father really encouraged it, actually. She was very close to him. But anyways, she kind of, she rose through the ranks and uh, she was appointed Minister of Education in the Conservative Party. And she, that she was the only female in cabinet, which was a really big deal. And she was appointed Minister of Education. And this was actually patronized as being seen as like a, a women's field, which is really common. Like education, health, things like that tend to be given to women because those are seen as, you know, womanly areas. But uh, Margaret Thatcher did deny that. She put a really... She obviously did believe education was very important, which it is. Like, it is interesting that some of these these types of fields get placed as being a woman's field, but they are actually very important. It's kind of just hilarious that the the patronizing is there, but it's like mm, this actually does matter, though. 
But anyway, she placed a lot of importance on education. And uh, to be honest, Margaret Thatcher also did, I think, have her, her conservative views were very like she did have very traditional views in that sense. And she also honestly at the time, nobody in the party, including herself, honestly thought she would ever be prime minister. I think she had the ambition, but I don't think she ever thought it would happen. And I don't think that she even necessarily wanted to strive for it because it just never seemed like it was possible. And so she was quite happy to be Minister of Education, and I'm quite sure that that's where she thought the furthest that she would go. She rose quite fast within the Conservative Party, though, and she did gain a lot of political capital and respect in her time in the Department of Education. She gained a lot of allies, but not all of them were women. She didn't necessarily feel or express solidarity with other women in the party. There was certainly no lively feminist movement in the party. So unlike uh, Juan Perón's wife, she certainly did not do much to advance yeah, feminism in Great Britain. I'm pretty sure she called feminism like a vile... She had like a number of quotes on it. It's kind of interesting. I don't think she was necessarily like anti-feminist, but I also don't think she was like necessarily... Pro-feminist? No. She, she said some pretty she's sketchy yeah. things about feminism. So. She sure has. She said a lot of sketchy things about a lot of things. But she's also <laughs> come back on a lot of those things too. So yeah. it's actually really hard to tell where Margaret Thatcher lies, I think, yeah. on some things because... Much like Juan Perón in Argentina, Margaret Thatcher in the UK is either a woman you absolutely love or you despise. Yeah, there's they're pretty she's a pretty polarizing figure. Yeah, the 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 term jelly and ice cream comes to mind because that was a saying going around. It's like, well, I have jelly and ice cream when Mar- when Thatcher dies. Yeah, she ultimately was again fine with the fact that there was no real like feminist movement or women's cabinet or anything like that within the Conservative Party. She didn't really care. She was extremely ambitious and. I think the thing about Thatcher is that she was like ruthlessly individualistic and she cared about herself. And I don't necessarily think she was selfish, but I do think like she was self-preservation was important and she was just very ambitious. She was just very ambitious. Like I think you could call her a ruthless woman and I do think that's probably an apt way to put it. And I don't think that necessarily means she was like ruthless in the terms of like she was relentless as well. Like she was never going to stop going for what she wanted. She's a bit of a bulldog and like you were kind of like, yeah, a dog with a bone, like you're not getting it away from her. This is a bit of foreshadowing, but again, but we will talk about that in a, like probably a separate episode. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, like, Thatcher was, like I said, she was very ambitious, but she actually saw herself as better than her male counterparts. So she she had a confidence about her, which was uh, actually quite impressive, to be honest. Sure. Say what you will about Margaret Thatcher, like, that, that confidence is is impressive. <laughs> and she was better than her male counterparts. And she was. I will give her that. I will I, give her that. Like, whether or not I've, I don't. I, don't... I, have a, I have a lot of feelings on Margaret Thatcher, but at the end of the day, I will never say she was incompetent or underprepared or incapable of doing the job she did. I think she was very intelligent, very capable, very smart, did everything she thought was right, whether or not you agree with that or not. But she ultimately, I think, was like prepared to be prime minister. I think she was a good leader in that sense. I don't know whether or not I think she was a good leader, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're trying to say. Like, she did a lot of damage to... Yes. A lot of things. Well, to British people. Yeah. At the same time, I don't think she necessarily did anything that other male politicians wouldn't have done if they believed the same things. See, also, Ronald Reagan. Um, <laughs> anyways... Thatcher, like we said, though, is very controversial. The first kind of major controversy she dealt, well, one of the first, she dealt with was when she was Minister of Education. There was a a round of expenditure cuts, which 
frankly, was a common theme during Margaret Thatcher's time in the Conservative Party, whether as a cabinet member or prime minister. She cut a lot of things. And uh, a program for free milk for school children was cut down. It wasn't completely eliminated, but it was cut down to, I think, like, instead of being free for all kids, it was just kids who kind of, like, really needed it or something. Like, it wasn't a complete elimination of the program, but optically it looks really terrible. And so she became as, she became known as Margaret Thatcher the Milk Snatcher. Um, <laughs> and it's a great nickname. I'm not going to lie. There was obviously quite a lot of public outcry. Thatcher... She stood behind her policy. Um, she defended it. And she was on the chopping block by the Prime Minister. Uh, Ted Heath was not really a fan of her, to be honest. I mean, a lot of powerful men weren't, and I get it. Again, whether or not I like Margaret Thatcher is beside the point. Men tend to be very threatened by powerful women, and Thatcher was a powerful woman. Um, Ted Heath wasn't really a fan, but her allies that were in the cabinet and were in the party, rallied for her to remain. And especially because she was the only woman in the cabinet, I think a lot of men were optically like aware, especially in the 70s with like women's lib and things like that, that can't get rid of the only woman in the party <laughs> in the cabinet. And they did like her. She did have legit polit legitimate political allies. A lot of people did genuinely really like Margaret Thatcher, so for whatever that's worth. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people who also genuinely hated her, and that's also valid simultaneously, the economic situation in the 1970s was quite tumultuous in the UK. Um, labor unions found themselves striking, uh, both public and private labor unions, which was not ideal for the government to deal with. Ted Heath, the British Prime Minister, who was the Labor Prime Minister at the time, was struggling to deal with the unions, and conservatives within the party were just generally unhappy with his direction on the matter. Sorry, this was the, sorry, he was a conservative prime minister. Um, the government changed like a million times in this period, so it's actually honestly hard to keep up. So Ted Heath, yeah, he was struggling to deal with this. Conservatives within the party were unhappy with his direction. And he was also very unpopular with the people. And he lost his majority government. And then Labour returned, the Labour Party returned to power. After this, a leadership challenge was mounted. And very few challenged Heath except for Margaret Thatcher. She saw an opportunity to go after him, but obviously a lot of other people were fans of Heath, and so they didn't. There was plenty of resistance within the party, obviously. Um, it was very paternalistic and traditional, and they saw a woman and upstart as a threat to their seated positions and the establishment, which they were very much in favor of. So despite getting 11 votes on the first ballot, she did not win a majority and forced a second ballot. Heath withdrew from the race, and all of the people who refused to run the first time jumped in. Thatcher managed to hold support, though, and she ended up winning by 67 votes, becoming the leader of the party of the, and the official opposition. The margin of victory and the victory in and of itself was really surprising to like everyone, especially once Heath withdrew and everyone, all the other popular candidates jumped in the race. Um, nobody expected Thatcher to hold on. So it was actually quite a uh, impressive political win just for her to be able to consolidate power like that. And she was a very good politician, if nothing else. <laughs> the problem for her was that the party of the, the power base of the party was still ultimately Heath's and they were very skeptical of her at best and hostile at worst. She did struggle to find her way in the House. Most female leaders do find this in politics, where it's very difficult to find a voice that fits. Like, you're either too soft or you're too hard or you're whatever. And so Thatcher struggled with that as well. I think she's probably struggled with that for her whole career, and much like every other female politician. But anyway, again, I don't want to sound like I'm painting her as too positive here necessarily, but I do think it's important to acknowledge, like, all of that background as well. Like, you can't talk about somebody being that important. I mean... The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is a really big deal, and even the opposite leader of the opposition is a really big deal. And so for a woman to hold that power is, for the first time ever, and only times, well, not only times since, but pretty much only times since, like, 
it's it's a lot, right? I mean, we still haven't seen a female president of the United States. So it's still a big deal when something like that happens. And so, again... And, and even in Canada, unfortunately, the <clears throat> only female prime minister we had, we didn't have for very long because... And she was never elected. No, and the reason why is because Brian Mulroney men fucked everything up <laughs> because men but um yeah kim she got screwed over a lot pretty hard but yeah so i i again i don't want to make it necessarily sound like i'm painting thatcher as a sympathetic figure but i do think the context is important it also just shows like how like ruthless she kind of was to be able to survive a lot of that because the conservative party was not a place that was not a very like hospitable place to be even for men frankly it chewed people up and spit them out so but during her time as the leader of the opposition, she worked on forging relationships with uh, the United States in particular. Um, she saw them as the ideal of what she believed in. I'll talk about that a little bit more when I talk about Thatcherism, but ultimately the party under her did become an ideological party, and she didn't shy away from controversy. She was by far the most right-wing leader of that party in a very long time. The election, 1978-1979, uh, was beginning to take a bit of form, and she actually <laughs> hired a... Uh, a PR firm to help her in the election because she struggled with being seen as likable to the electorate. Um, one of the things she actually did, and this is quite common for female politicians, is altering the tone of her voice. She changed the pitch of her voice. She lowered it because people thought it was very screechy. She was given the nickname the Iron Lady by the Soviet government, and she actually viewed the name as a, as a badge of honor. Um, it was meant to kind of be an insult, but <laughs> she but she wore it as a badge of honor because she viewed the name as giving her the role of the defender of British and capitalist values. And so she really embraced it. What ultimately made her the most famous <laughs> what is, is through what's known as like the winter of discontent or what was the winter of 1978-79. So basically between November and February. This was the period leading up to the, leading up to and kind of including the election, but it was a very, like, contentious period. Basically, this period was marred by those widespread labor strikes I mentioned, all of these strikes, uh, that they were demanding greater pay raises, uh, or bigger pay raises than the government had been imposing. There was, like, a, a limit on how much pay raises could be. And so people were demanding higher raises than that because inflation was rising higher than wages were, which is happening now. <laughs> Always happens. So some of these strikes caused a lot of public inconvenience. Uh, there was a, a waste pickup strike, or like a refuse worker strike. There was a, uh, a grave digger strike. Uh, there was almost an NHS strike, but I think that was kind of... I think there was an NHS strike, but it was kind of stopped before it became bigger. A lot of really like big public services and things like that that went on strike that caused a lot of issues for people. And this also coincided with the fact that it was the coldest winter in 16 years, and it actually isolated a lot of people because there were storms that hadn't happened in a lot of time. So snow cut a lot of people off. It was cold. Ergo, the winter of discontent, which is actually from Shakespeare. <laughs> the labor unrest had broader causes beyond just the caps, though. Um, there were internal divisions within the Labor Party over their commitments to socialism, and that actually manifested in the disputes over labor law reform and the macroeconomic strategy of the country during the 70s, 60s and 70s. And it pitted constituency members of the Labor Party against the party's establishment. So unrest in the Labor Party also really did not help this. Many strikes were initiated at a local level, with national union leaders largely being unable to stop them. Union membership, particularly at the public sector, had grown more female and less white, and the growth of the public sector unions had not brought them a commensurate share of the power within the trade union congress. So basically how it's really complicated 
I'm going to try and explain it, but essentially there's this thing called the Trade Union Congress, which all of the labor unions belonged to. Those labor union leaders would then negotiate with the government. I think <laughs> I'm probably getting that kind of wrong because it was very difficult to understand, but essentially the people at the top of the Trade Union Congress lead all of these unions, but the union membership itself wasn't represented by those people. They didn't feel represented. And so when they went to strike, the union leaders couldn't really stop them because they're like, well, you don't really represent us anyway, so get, get wrecked. There was a, a question mounted to Prime Minister Callahan at the time regarding whether or not there was mounting chaos in the country with all of the strikes. And uh, Callahan denied that this was a thing. Well, his quote was something really more along the lines of, like, we're concerned about what's happening, but we don't think this is a crisis. People took that and ran with it, as the media will do, and just, you know, it's politics, so everything's going to be sensationalized. But The Sun ran, headline, ran the headline, Crisis? What Crisis? Which Callahan never actually said, but he would be associated with them forever, and they were ultimately an effective paraphrase of what he did say. Thatcher, meanwhile, as leader of the opposition, had been calling on the government to declare a state of emergency to deal with the strikes during the first week of January, and she called for the immediate enactment of reforms, such as a ban on secondary picketing of third-party businesses not directly targeted by a strike, ending closed-shop contracts under which employers can only hire those already members of the union, requiring votes by secret ballot for strikes in the and in the elections of union officials, and securing no-strike agreements with public sector unions that provided pivotal public services such as police, fire, healthcare, and utilities. So Thatcher had a lot of ideas about how to crack down on unions, and she was pushing for the government to actually do something about it, but they weren't particularly interested in that. Callahan's gaffe in denying, well, not denying, but not confirming the crisis, provided an opportunity for the ever-shrewd politician Thatcher and a week later, she addressed the situation in a Conservative Party political broadcast. Basically, she had these like kind of like fireside chats that FDR used to have, but they were televised. From a small sitting room, she spoke from the heart and tried to be less like a politician and more like just a person. And said, quote, Tonight, I don't propose to use the time to make party political points. I do not think you would want me to do so. The crisis that our country faces is too serious for that, she told viewers. This shrewd political move would help her become prime minister four months later when Callahan's government fell to a no-confidence vote and triggered an election. The 1979 general election was the first since 1959 to have three new leaders of the main political parties. The battleground was between Thatcher and Callahan, so conservatives and labor. Without ever explicitly mentioning Thatcher's sex, Callahan was a, quote, a master at sardonically implying that whatever the leader of the opposition said was made even sillier by the fact that it was said by a woman. So, again, her gender was certainly going to play a role in this election, but just like in every other opportunity she's ever had to crush a man, <laughs> Thatcher studied, just did what she always did and studied really hard and exploited her femini femininity in a way to appear as someone who understood housewives' household budgets. So she basically was like, I'm super intelligent, but I'm also a housewife, so I can appeal to the average, you know, British housewife who's just trying to make all of this work. Again, just shrewd political move, right? She knew her stuff, she was smart, but she also knew how to weaponize the thing that was trying to be used against her. A televised debate was proposed between the two, but Thatcher eventually declined, stating that the election was for a government and not for a president, which meant that there was no debate in the end. Which is actually really interesting, because I guess for those of you who don't, or maybe don't understand like British government, technically what she's saying is true. When you're voting in the general election, in Canada or the United Kingdom, or I think Australia still works this way too, um, I assume. 
you actually are voting for your member of parliament. You're not voting for the prime minister. So you vote for an elected representative of the area you live in. And so Margaret Thatcher would have been an MP for an area of, I actually don't know where her riding was, but she was an MP for a riding in the United Kingdom. And only the people who lived in that riding would have been able to actually vote for her. So while the campaign is national and, you know, you, she campaigns as the leader of the party to become prime minister, the electorate as a whole does not actually vote for her. They vote for the party that she is the leader of. And so, well, there's a few reasons she declined the debate. But first of all, her point about it being for a government and not a president is a valid point. It's kind of like it's a show, basically, right? It's like a president. She didn't want it to become like a presidential debate. It's not about that. The other thing, ultimately, is that Thatcher had more to lose by appearing in a debate than Callahan because women always do. <laughs> and I think that she was able to duck the debate thing pretty well. I don't think you'd get away with that now, though. Things have changed for sure. Ultimately, in the end, it didn't matter because the conservatives were able to work a majority for the country's first female prime minister. So she won the election with a majority of votes and they had a majority government. It's quite easy to say that the strikes had a profound effect on the electorate and how they voted in this election. So according to Gallup, Labour had a five-point lead over the Conservatives in November 1978 and turned into a Conservative lead of 7.5 points by January 1979 and 20, 20 points by February 1979. So basically Callahan's gaffes and just like inability to deal with strikes and Thatcher's strong push to call for a state of emergency to deal with the trade unions, things like that, was ultimately popular among people and it had a really big effect on swinging the vote. I think it's reasonably safe to say that if the election had been called in November 1978 before the winter of discontent that labor at least would have probably eked out a minority government at least they just they might not have lost power but they would have like they, they might not have lost the government but they not only lost the government they also lost a majority so yeah their handling of the strikes I think did have a, a real effect on their political outcomes and this is ultimately because the conservatives did make extensive use of the strikes during the campaigns especially the crisis what crisis bluff and the other thing is that the conservatives, the scale of the conservative victory in the general election has often been ascribed to the effect of the strikes, but as well as their quote unquote, labor isn't working campaign, which is actually very clever. <laughs> I have to say the conservative victory in 1979 marked a change in the government in the UK that would continue for 18 years, which was actually a period of relative stability after four changes in government in the spate of 15 years previous, which is a lot like that's, that's a lot of tumult, especially for a government like that, a big country. Any country, really, but... And this kind of brings us to the other ideology in this uh, this whole thing is Thatcherism. So Thatcher's time in power was ultimately characterized by a system of decisive... Primarily by a systemic and decisive rejection and reversal of the post-war consensus on themes of Keynesian economics, the welfare state, nationalized industry, and the close regulation of the British economy, with the exception of the NHS, the National Health Service. Um, while Thatcher went after basically every other public service and everything that she could. She did not touch the NHS and made a lot of promises that she never would. They actually bolstered NHS funding in some cases. So interesting exception. But anyways. <laughs> if, they, if, they, if she would have touched the NHS, there would have been a revolution. I think so too, yeah. I think she was smart enough to know that like that's not. <laughs> yeah. And I think ultimately the NHS worked. Like, oh, yeah. I think, you know, I do think there's something to be said about um, universal health care being well enough established in countries like that that even the most hardcore of conservatives are probably like eh, <laughs> it's fine i don't know about that now but at least at the time yeah so the ideology of the thatcher era is often referred to as thatcherism very you know super unique um, 
But the exact terms of what make up Thatcherism are kind of controversial. As described by Thatcher's chancellor of the uh, exchequer. I don't know. Actually, yeah, yeah. Exchequer. Exchequer. Such a weird word. The British are strange. Um, as described by Thatcher's chancellor of the exchequer from 1983 to 1989. Thatcherism is as a political flat platform emphasizing free markets with restrained government spending and tax cuts, coupled with British nationalism both at home and abroad. It is often compared with Reaganomics in the United States and as a key part of the worldwide economic liberal movement. Thatcherism is thus often compared to classical liberalism. Milton Friedman, who was someone she valued very much, said, Margaret Thatcher is not in terms of belief a Tory, which is a current conservative. She is a 19th century liberal. So essentially she would have fit in really well with, uh, why is the name now absolutely leaving my brain? Smith? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> like, I see this. My brain is just apparently dropping it. Um, yeah, she she would have fit really well in the uh, early 19th century. It's been argued that uh, Thatcherite capitalism was inherently compatible with traditional British political institutions, which I think is probably pretty fair. As Prime Minister, Thatcher did not challenge ancient institutions like the monarchy or the House of Lords, but the things that she did challenge were recent additions such as trade unions. So I think that is a pretty apt way of of thinking about it that she really would have fit in that early like it's, it is neoliberal it's not necessarily conservative in the sense that we think of it now thatcher was a strong critic of communism unsurprisingly um, marxism and socialism her biographer john campbell reported that in july 1978 when asked by a labor mp in the house of commons what she meant by socialism she quote was at a loss to reply what in fact she meant was government support for inefficient industries punitive taxation regulation of the labor market price controls everything that interfered with the functioning of the free economy she saw herself as creating a libertarian movement rejecting traditional albeit wait traditional toryism and she is associated with, with libertarianism within the conservative party albeit one of libertarian ends achieved by using strong and sometimes authoritarian leadership styles uh, the amount to which Thatcherism should be considered libertarianism seems to be also very controversial. It's a bit ironic. Yes. Yeah, another important aspect of Thatcherism is ultimately the style of government in and of itself. In the 1970s, Britain was often referred to as ungovernable because it was just a wild time, like with all the strikes and just there was a lot of just like malcontent within the House of Commons and within the government itself. And Thatcher basically tried to address this by consolidating her power and centralizing a very great deal of it to herself. So she did basically become an authoritarian uh, as well. <laughs> she often bypassed traditional cabinet structures, such as cabinet committees. It's funny because Westminster model of government does actually very much allow for this. Like if you have a majority government, there is actually very little from stopping you from basically being a dictator in the sense that like you have a lot of power. What stops you is that you were elected so probably people will <laughs> fight back, right? But technically you do have the ability to consolidate a lot of power for yourself and that's exactly what Thatcher did. So in a way she actually made herself more like a president than a prime minister, which is interesting because she didn't want the, the debate to be about making a, pre a president. But uh, yeah, anyways, politically this personal approach to things, like, you know, being in charge of everything, also became with a associated with a personal toughness, um, especially at times of crisis. So during the IRA bombing of the Conservative Conference in 1984 and the miners' strike in 1984-85, for example, she was very much viewed as a very personally tough woman because she was in charge of everything and handling it. Thatcherism is associated with the main economic theory of monetarism, uh, notably put forward by Friedrich Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty. 
again, Hayek and Friedman were two of Thatcher's most revered economists, people she really like valued and trusted and believed in. I think the Constitution of Liberty, actually, she basically slammed the book down at a conservative conference and was like, this is what we believe, um, which is a bold move. So yeah, in contrast to previous government policy, monetarism placed a priority on controlling inflation over controlling unemployment, as according to the monetarist theory, inflation is the result of too much money being in the economy. It was claimed that the government should seek to control the money supply to control inflation. But by 1979, it was not only the Thatcherites who were arguing for stricter control of inflation, because it had gotten extremely out of control. But it's also been argued that the Thatcherites were not strictly monetarist in practice and economic Oh my god. Ec Economist C.F. Pratton, Pratton claimed that by 1984, the principles of monetarism had pretty much been abandoned anyways, because they didn't really work. <laughs> um, well, not even that it didn't work. It was just hard to do. But yeah, Thatcherism also economically is associated with supply-side economics. Uh, Keynesian economics holds that the government should stimulate economic growth by increasing demand through increased credit and public spending, whereas supply-side economics argues that the government should instead only intervene to create a free market by lowering taxes, privatizing state industries, and increasing restraints on trade unionism. So basically, like, trickle-down economics and, like... Because essentially, yeah, it's it's basically, like, trick... It is very similar to Reaganomics in that sense. It's the idea that if we lower taxes, create tax breaks for businesses, it'll encourage them to... The people at the top to create more jobs, and then that wealth will trickle down to the poor people. But it doesn't work. That's been proven time and time again. But anywho... That's what Thatcher believed. Thatcherite political philosophy dictated re reducing state intervention, and since gaining power, Thatcher had experimented with selling off a, national a small nationalized company, the National Freight Company, to its workers with positive results. So after the election in 1983, the government got bolder and started with the British Telecom, sold off most of the large utilities which had been in public ownership since the late 1940s. The policy of privatization basically became synonymous with Thatcherism. So... Yeah, privatization is still something that's very much, like, debated as to the pros and cons of it. We're still dealing with that, actually, in Canada to some extent. There are still lots of crown corporations which exist that are slowly being sold off in certain places, and there's just a lot of debate about the pros and cons of that. I personally generally don't think it's good, but that's a debate for another time. Honestly. <laughs> you get, you're going to get no debate from me. So. Point being, uh, Thatcher definitely privatized a shitload of stuff. But... Importantly to this discussion was her defense policy. So during her first six months as prime minister, Thatcher repeatedly prioritized defense spending over economic policy and financial control. That really changed, though, in 1980, and she reversed her priority and attempted to cut the defense budget. So in 1981, a white paper or a policy memo titled The UK Defense Program, The Way Forward, was released. It's, wow, that's quite the title. Was released, and it was a major review of the UK's defense policy brought about under the Thatcher government. The aim of the review was to reduce expenditures during the 1980s recession and to focus on supporting NATO rather than the out-of-area operations. So rather than defending the larger empire, we're going to focus on NATO, so the North Atlantic Treaty. The Cold War was very much still in effect, so I think that was probably why to some extent too. It's also cheaper. Um, <laughs> they don't have to pay for everything in NATO. So the review proposed extensive cuts to the Royal Navy's surface fleet, including the sale of the new aircraft carrier Invincible to Australia thereby reducing the carrier fleet to two. The sale of Invincible, I don't think ever actually happened, though, because uh, Invincible definitely was in the Falklands. So, yeah, kind of confusing, but I don't, actually don't think that one went through. But anyways, under the review, though, the Royal Navy was focused primarily on anti-submarine warfare under the auspices of NATO and 
any out-of-area amphibious operations were considered unlikely. So somewhere like the Falcons, Falklands, for instance. <laughs> there were other ships cut from the fleet, and alongside the proposed hull cuts, it was revealed that the Navy would incur a manpower cut of between eight and 10,000 people as well. The regular army was reduced by 7,000 people, which was to be partly offset by the gradual expansion of the territorial army by a figure of 16,000. In Germany, Britain's land commitment was to be reduced by about 2,000. So there was NATO bases and are NATO bases in Germany. Meanwhile, in the Royal Air Force, manpower losses would amount to about 2,500. The white paper was controversial in the time, and it ultimately was shortly judged to have been extremely detrimental to the, de to defense, to the defense of the realm, being, among other things, widely considered a contributing factor to the outbreak of the Falklands War. Because... Yeah, Britain just decided to give up on defending the territories. <laughs> They're like, eh, can't really afford that. We're broke boys. <laughs> Foreboding much? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. With the current cuts to military spending in the UK, the Junta believed the British would either not respond or be slow to respond to a potential invasion of the Falklands. Furthermore, they believed the rest of the world through the UN would push for the UK to seek a diplomatic solution rather than a military one. Initially, the plan was to cut supplies to the island before invading in late 1982. They would do this by not allowing <laughs> British ships to go through Argentinian territorial waters. Since 1978, Argentine scrap dealers were contracted to work on the South Georgia Islands, owned by Konstantin Davidhoff. At the time, South Georgia was only inhabited by members of the British Antarctic Survey and around 100 elephant seals, countless albatross, and a plethora of penguins. <laughs> In December 1977, HMS Endurance was on patrol when it discovered a group of Argentines on the south fuel of the South Sandwich Islands. Britain made a formal complaint in January and demanded the ex an explanation. In response, the Argentines stated they were working on establishing a research station, quote, within the jurisdiction of Argentine sovereignty, end quote, while assuring it would not be permanent. The British called the action a violation of British sovereignty and demanded the program cease. On March 18th, Davidoff's ship Bahia Buen Sueso returned to South Georgia as scheduled. However, this time they did not follow proper procedure and ventured straight for Leith Harbor instead of stopping uh, at the, I'm, forgive me for my pronunciation of this, Gritvikin, as was protocol. The next day, members of the British Antarctic Survey arrived in Leith to discover Argentines unpacking equipment, which included an Argentine flag raised on a makeshift pole. The Argentines claimed the landing had been authorized by the British Embassy in Buenos Aires. However, once the survey reported back to Port Stanley, it became clear this was not the case. In response, Endurance was dispatched to patrol South Georgia. This convinced the Junta to push forward their plans of invasion. On April 2nd, at around 4.30 a.m., Falklanders were shocked to find around 150 soldiers of the Buzo Tactico, which is Argentine Special Forces, repelling from helicopters at Mullet Creek, three miles south of Port Stanley. Soon after, 500 Argentine soldiers made an amphibious landing onto the Falklands, beginning the invasion. 47 Royal Marines and 11 sailors were on the Falklands at the time and attempted to mount a defense. Major Norman, who was leader of the Royal Marines there, ordered them to take up defensive positions around Government House in Port Stanley. 
The Argentine Navy be also began a blockade of the island in case of British retaliation and to block any British supplies from coming in. At 6.30 a.m., Argentines engaged defenders at Government House. The initial assault was beaten back by the British. Lieutenant Commander Giacciano was struck by gunfire in the assault and later died from his wounds. Following the failed attack, a standoff ensued. It soon became clear the British would not surrender without a fight and Rear Admiral Carlos Busser began ordering artillery to be set up. However, he wanted to avoid further bloodshed as much as possible. Busser sent word to Governor Rex Hunt he wished to speak, which Hunt, Hunt agreed to. Argentine Marines were allowed into Government House and they be, immediately began harassing Hunt and other government officials. However, they were reprimanded by Bucer and ordered away. Bucer shook Hunt's hand and congratulated him on the successful defense. Upon learning of the large number of forces prepared to land, Hunt agreed to surrender in order to spare his men from death and prevent potential civilian casualties. At 12.15 p.m., Hunt ordered his men to lay down arms and the Argentinian flag was raised over a government house. This was the following message that was relayed to London, and again, it is very, very British. London. What are all the rumors? Port Stanley. We have a lot of new friends. London. What about the invasion rumors? Stanley. Those are the friends I was meaning. London. They've landed? Port Stanley. Absolutely. London. Are you open for traffic? Port Stanley. No orders on that yet. One must obey orders. London. Whose orders? Port Stanley, the new governor. London, Argentina. Port Stanley, yes. London, are the Argentinians in control? Port Stanley, yes. You can't argue with thousands of troops plus enormous Navy support when you're only 1,800 strong. Stand by, please. Following this conversation, the communication lines were severed and all communications between the two ceased. The next day, the Argentines landed and captured South Georgia. The British, of course, responded with outrage over the invasion. The opposition Labour Party criticized that the Thatcher government for the lack of proper dialogue and concessions with the Argentines, which they blamed for the invasion. Although, you know what, invasion was probably inevitable anyway. In the House of Commons on April 3rd, Thatcher stated the government did not and would not accept the Falklands were Argentinas, saying the following. Mr. Speaker, the people of the Falkland Islands, like the people of the United Kingdom, are an island race. Their way of life is British, their allegiance is to the Crown. They are few in number, but they have the right to live in peace, to choose their own way of life, and to determine their own allegiance. Their way of life is British, their allegiance is to the Crown. It is the wish of the British people and the duty of Her Majesty's Government to do everything we can to uphold that right. That will be our hope and our endeavour, and I believe the resolve of every honourable member of this House. The same day as Thatcher's speech, the UN Security Council held an emergency meeting to discuss the events of the Falklands. British Ambassador and UN Representative Sir Anthony Parsons tabled Resolution 502. It demanded the immediate end of hostilities and for Argentina to withdraw from the Falklands and South Georgia. The resolution was passed with 10 in favor, while Panama was the sole vote against. China, Poland, Spain, and the Soviet Union abstained. Argentina occupied the Falklands for a total of 74 days. One of the first moves was to remove Governor Hunt and all foreign office officials from the islands. 
sending them to Montevideo, Uruguay. Several settlements were given name changes, including renaming Port Stanley to Puerto Argentino. Vehicles were ordered to drive on the right with street signs switched to correspond to the change. Yes, because <laughs> the fault, yeah, British drive on the left. It's weird. Falklanders were understandably not happy with the occupation and conducted several acts of civil disobedience, which included continuing to drive on the left. <laughs> the first 24 hours after the invasion was spent sending up defensive positions in and around Port Stanley. Stanley Airport was converted into a hub for the Argentine Air Force. Several Air Force divisions were also redeployed to southern Argentina. The most dangerous weapons deployed to the islands were the Tiger were a Tiger Cat missile unit and twin Roland SAM launchers. Each were supplied with a number of Exocet surface-to-surface missile uh, surface-to-surface missile launchers. Exocets are anti-ship missiles produced in France, which can be fitted to submarines, helicopters, aircraft, or launched from surface launchers. The Falklands would be the first time Exocets missiles were ever used. Aside from Stanley, Argentine soldiers established a defensive zone at Goose Green, located on East Falkland's central isthmus. It remains the Falklands' third largest settlement with a population of, get this, 40. <laughs> Apart from the, these main defensive positions, a small detachment was sent to secure West Falkland. The area was scarcely populated and thus not deemed a likely place for the British to launch their military response. Falklanders, who were deemed the most troublesome and vocally against the occupation, were expelled from the island. 114 residents of Goose Green and the surrounding area were imprisoned in the, uh, the social hall for much of the war. It was claimed this was done for their own protection from Argentine Air Force personnel. Life in the social hall was dismal. Water ran out on day three, the toilets became backed up, and there were cases of dysentery. Eventually, the Argentines were persuaded to bring in barrels of water from the sea in order to use the toilets. 52 school children were removed from the island and their playground was repurposed into a drill ground for the Argentine forces. You know, make do with what you have. Much of the policing on the islands fell into the hands of the Argentine military police. Falkland Police Sergeant Anton Livermore noted he got along well with the Argentine police officers, but not the higher-ups. Livermore was eventually relieved when he refused orders to arrest a civilian despite him coming under armed threat to do so. However, the majority of life under occupation for the Falklanders was relatively calm. Despite orders from officers to shoot any quote-unquote kelpers who resisted occupation from their homes, the Argentine soldiers, who were mostly young conscripts, never resorted to such methods, even when met with resistance. Civilian property was indeed stolen and random house surges were conducted somewhat frequently. On the Argentine mainland, upwards of 250,000 people took to the streets of Buenos Aires in celebration. In contrast, two days earlier, 10,000 people marched in protest of the Junta and Gal Galtieri's uh, leadership. The invasion did have drastic consequences, though. Panicked investors and ordinary citizens lined up en masse to withdraw their investments and savings respectfully. As a result, Economic Minister Roberto Alemán 
was forced to suspend all foreign exchange tra transactions apart from imports in an effort to prevent a likely liquidi liquidity crisis, which would be a large nail in the Argentina's already struggling economy. Alaman had never been consulted on or even informed of the invasion plans. Alaman was successful in convincing the, the European Economic Community, or the that time's uh, EU, members not to impose strict trade sanctions on Argentina, arguing doing so would limit Argentina's ability to pay back their debts, which surprisingly worked. <laughs> Most countries condemned Argentina's actions. While officially neutral, Brazil did secretly provide Argentina with armaments, though this was not revealed until decades later. Seeing how Argentina ignored the UNSC's order to withdraw, the UK invoked Article 51 of the UN Charter, which grants members a right to use military action through right of self-defense. This saw overwhelming support from the Commonwealth and European Economic Community which imposed sanctions on Argentina. The UK was now set for war. The British government had no contingency plan for an invasion of the islands, and the British task force was thrown together quite rapidly from whatever vessels were available. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit like the Dunkirk rescue, where it's like, ah, that floats, send it. <laughs> so the nuclear submarine Conqueror set sail from Scotland on April 4th. Uh, two aircraft carriers, Invincible and Hermes, and their escort vessels left Portsmouth the next day. And on its return to Southampton from a world cruise on April 7th, the ocean liner SS Canberra was requisitioned and set sail two days later with the three commando brigade aboard. The ocean liner Queen Elizabeth II was also requisitioned and left Southampton on May 12th with the 5th Infantry Brigade aboard. The entire task force was eventually comprised of 127 ships, 43 Royal Navy vessels, 22 Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships, and 62 merchant ships. So literally anything that floated. Yeah. And was big enough, I guess. <laughs> the retaking of the Falkland Islands was considered extremely difficult, and the chances of a British counter-invasion succeeding were seen by the U.S. Navy as a, quote, military impossibility. So there were a few challenges. The British were significantly hamstrung by the disparity in deployable air cover, for instance. Uh, the British had 42 aircraft available for combat operations against approximately 122 serviceable aircraft in Argentina's Air Force. Crucially, the British also lacked uh, Airborne Early Warning and Control, or AEW, aircraft. So, you know, important. By mid-April, the RAF had set up an airbase on RAF Ascension Island, co-located with uh, Wide Awake Airfield on the mid-Atlantic British Overseas Territory of Ascension Island. I guess the good news about being Britain is that you owned most of the world, so there's places you can stop in on the way to the Falklands. Uh, the British Naval Task Force had already arrived at Ascension to prepare for active service, and a small force had already been sent south to recapture South Georgia. So the South Georgia Force, or uh, Operation Parakeet, under the command of Major Guy Sheridan, RM, consisted of Marines from 42 Commando, a troop of the Special Air Service, or SAS, and Special Boat Service, or SBS troops, who were intended to land as reconnaissance forces for an invasion by the Royal Marines, so a total of about 240 men. All were embarked on the RFA Tidespring, and the first to arrive was the Churchill-class submarine HMS Conqueror on April 19th, and the island was overflown by a Handley Page Victor aircraft with radar mapping equipment on April 20th to establish that no Argentinian ships were in the vicinity. 
The first landings of SAS and SBS troops took place on April 21st, but a mission to establish an observation post on the Fortuna Glacier had to be withdrawn after two helicopters crashed in fog and high winds. On April 23rd, a submarine alert was sounded and operations were halted with Tidespring being withdrawn to deeper water to avoid interception. British forces regrouped on April 24th and they headed into and then headed into attack. On April 25th, the Argentinian submarine ARA Santa Fe was spotted on the surface by a helicopter from HMS Antrim, which attacked the sub with depth charges. HMS Plymouth and Brilliant both launched attack helicopters, the latter of which launched a torpedo and strafed the submarine with, with its machine guns. The helicopter from the Plymouth also fired anti-ship missiles at the submarine and scored hits. Santa Fe was damaged badly enough to prevent her from diving, and the crew abandoned the submarine at the jetty at King Edward Point on South Georgia. With Tidespring far out to sea and the Argentine forces augmented by the submarine's crew, Major Sheridan decided to gather the 76 men he did have and make a direct assault that, that day. After a short forced march by the British troops and a naval bombardment demonstration by two Royal Navy vessels, a total of 190 Argentinians surrendered without resistance. The message sent from the naval force at South Georgia to London was, quote, Be pleased to inform Her Majesty that the White Ensign flies along the Union Jack in South Georgia. God save the Queen. On May 1st, British operations on the Falklands opened Operation Black, Black Buck 1 to Black Buck 7, and they were a series of extremely long-range ground attack missions by the RAF Vulcan bombers of the RAF Waddington Wing. The, er, the objection of the objective of the missions was to attack Port Stanley Airport and its associated defenses. The raids at almost 6,600 nautical miles and 16 hours for the return journey were the longest-range bombing raids in history at the time. Operation Black Buck raids were staged from RIF Ascension Island, close to the equator. The Vulcan aircraft was designed for medium-ranged missions in Europe and lacked the range to fly to the Falklands without refueling several times, and the RIF's refueling tankers had a similar range as the Vulcans, meaning that they also needed constant refueling in the air. A total of 11 tankers were required for two Vulcans, a daunting logistical effort as all aircraft had to use the same runway. So essentially, like... Yeah, 11 fuel tankers were required for two Vulcan aircraft because they had to refuel the refueling tankers just to refuel the Vulcans. It was definitely a logistical nightmare. The Vulcans carried either 21 1,000-pound bombs internally or four strike anti-radar missiles externally. Of the five Black Buck missions flown to completion, three were against Stanley Airfield's runway and operational facilities, while the other two were anti-radar missions using strike missiles in the Port Stanley area. Strikes hit two of the less valuable and rapidly replaced secondary fire control radars, causing a few casualties among Argentines. One Vulcan was nearly lost when a fuel shortage forced it to land in Brazil. The raids ultimately did minimal damage to the runway, and da or damage to the radars was quickly repaired. A single crater was produced on the runway, rendering it impossible for the airfield to be used by fast jets, but the Argentinians managed to fix it to a serviceable level within 24 hours. The British were made aware that the runway was still in use, and British officials made it clear that there would no, be no strikes on air bases in Argentina. So in the end, the ultimate effectiveness of these raids is pretty controversial. Ultimately, a United States Marine Corps study concluded that, quote, the most critical judgment of the use of the Vulcan centers on the argument that their use was largely to prove the Air Force had some role to play and not to help the battle in the least. This illustrates the practice of armed services to actively seek a, quote, piece of the action when a conflict arises, even if their capabilities or mission are not compatible with the circumstances of the conflict. Using Black Buck as an example shows the effects of this practice can be trivial and the results not worth the effort involved. So essentially they required, it was an extremely expensive project, they needed 11 fuel tankers for two planes, and then they didn't actually do any real damage with all of those resources. So Operation Black Buck was kind of, like, a waste. <laughs> 
but there were some other victories for the British government. On April 30th, the British military set up a 200 nautical mile total exclusion zone to replace the previous maritime exclusion zone. This meant that aircraft as well as ships of any nation were liable to attack within it, especially if they were aiding Argentinian occupation. So the RAF intercepted a number of Argentinian planes and managed to uh, safely like get all of them out of there. But Admiral Woodward's carrier battle group of 12 warships and three supply ships entered the total exclusion zone on May 1st, shortly before the first Black Buck operation in- intending to degrade Argentinian air and sea forces before the arrival of the amphibious groups two weeks later. So in anticipation, Argentinian General Anaya, or sorry, Admiral Anaya had deployed all of his available warships into three task groups. Their first was centered around aircraft carrier ARA Ventasino de Mayo with two old missile, old but missile-armed destroyers. A second comprised of three modern frigates, and both of these groups were intended to approach the exclusion zone from the north. The third group, third, sorry, group approaching from the south was led by the World War II-era Argentine light cruiser, light cruiser ARA General Belgrano. Though she was old, her large guns and heavy armor made her a serious threat, and she was escorted by two modern guided mis- missile destroyers. So basically the Argentinians just, like, put some of their older but really powerful ships with some newer stuff and tried to, like, I don't know. The British did the same thing, basically. <laughs> On May 1st, the nuclear submarine Conqueror located the Belgrano group and followed it until the following day when it was 12 hours away from the task force and just outside the exclusion zone. Admiral Woodward was made aware of the carrier group approaching from the other direction and ordered the cruiser to be attacked to avoid being caught in a pincer movement. He was unaware that the Ventasino de Mayo had failed to gain enough headwind to launch her aircraft. The order to sink the Belgrano was confirmed by the War Cabinet in London and General Belgrano was hit with two torpedoes at 4 p.m. local time on May 2nd, sinking an hour later. 368 members of the Belgrano's crew died in the incident, and more than 700 men were rescued from the open water despite cold seas and stormy weather, enduring up to 30 hours in overcrowded life rafts. The loss of the General Belgrano drew heavy criticism from Latin American countries and from opponents of the war in Britain. Support from the British cause wavered amongst some European allies, but crucially, the United States remained supportive. On May 4th, two days after the sinking of the General Belgrano, the British lost destroyer HMS Sheffield to, the fire, to a fire following an Exocet missile strike from the Argentine 2nd Naval Air Fighter Attack Squadron. Sheffield had been ordered forward with two other similar-style ships to provide a long-range radar and medium-high-altitude missile picket f- uh, far from the British carriers. She was struck midship with devastating effect, ultimately killing 20 crew members and severely injuring 24. The ship was abandoned several hours later, gutted and deformed by the fire. She was kept afloat for four days for inspections and the hope that she might attract Argentinian submarines, which, would, which could be hunted by helicopter. The decision was then made to tow her to Ascension, but while being towed by the HMS Yarmouth, she finally sank east of the Falklands on May 10th. The destruction of the Sheffield was the first Royal Navy ship to be sunk in action since World War II, and it had a profound impact on the war cabinet and the British public as a whole, as it made the conflict feel really real as an actual shooting war, not just some posturing in the... Um, in the Atlantic. Fun fact, we are recording it on the date of the anniversary. Yeah. So the threat posed to the British fleet by the Argentinian aircraft and missiles. Plans were made to use C-130s to fly some special forces troops to attack the home base of the five attack fighters at Rio Grande, Tierra del Fuego. The operation was nicknamed Mikado, and it was later scrapped after acknowledging that its chances of success were limited and replaced with a plan to use the submarine HMS Onyx to drop SAS operatives several miles offshore at night for them to make their way to the 
coast aboard rubber inflatables and proceed to destroy Argentina's remaining Exocet missile stockpile. An SAS reconnaissance team was dispatched to carry out preparations for a seaborne infiltration. A helicopter took off from the HMS Invincible with the assigned SAS team on May 17th, but due to bad weather, they were forced to land 80 kilometers from their target and the mission was aborted. The pilot then flew them to Chile, dropped off the team, and the helicopter was destroyed by the crew. The crew then surrendered to the Chilean police and were repatriated to the UK after interrogation. Meanwhile, the SAS team crossed the border and penetrated into Argentina, but cancelled their mission after the Argentinians suspected an SAS operation and deployed some 2,000 troops to search for them. The SAS crew managed to return to Chile, and they took a civilian flight back to the UK. There were other SAS and SBS operations, destroying several, several aircraft, ultimately. Uh, one of those attacks took place on May 15th by the Special Boat Service as teams were inserted at Grantham Sound to observe landing beaches at San Carlos Bay. On the evening of May 20th, the day before the main landings, an SBS troop and artillery observers were landed by helicopters for an assault on an Argentinian observation post at Fanning Head, which overlooked the entrance to the bay. Meanwhile, the SAS conducted a diversionary raid at Darwin. Um, under the codename Operation Sutton, the British forces planned amphibious landings around San Carlos, um, an inlet located off Falkland Sound, the strait between East Falkland and West Falkland. This location was chosen as the landing force because it would be protected by the terrain against missile and submarine attacks, and it was distant enough from Stanley to prevent a rapid reaction from the Argentinian ground troops. The landing took the Argentines completely by surprise. Uh, Argentine Navy officers had considered that the location was not a good choice for such an operation and had left the zone without major defenses. The task of opposing these landings mostly fell on the Argentine Air Force, who were operating under severe limitations due to the distance of the target area and limited refueling resources. So the Argentine Army Force that was on site was located at Fanning Head, and they opened fire on the British fleet after it was spotted. The British warships responded and returned fire. The Argentines managed to take down a couple of British helicopters, but eventually they retreated from Fanning Head, abandoning their communications equipment. At least eight members of another Argentinian platoon who fled the scene were left behind and captured by the British. Overall, the invasion sparked a strong reply from the Argentine Air Force and naval aviation, which led to the Battle of San Carlos. So in the landing zone, the limitations of the British ship's anti-aircraft defenses were demonstrated in the sinking of the HMS Ardent on May 21st, which was hit by nine bombs, and the HMS Antelope on May 24th when attempts to defuse unexploded bombs failed and it blew up. At sea with the carrier battle group, MV Atlantic Conveyor was struck by an air-launched Exocet missile, which caused the loss of three out of four Chinook helicopters and five Wessex helicopters, as well as their maintenance equipment and facilities. This was a severe blow from a logistical standpoint, and 12 crew were killed. Also lost on the 25th was the sister ship to the Sheffield, the HMS Coventry, whilst in company with the HMS Broadsword, which, by the way, is a really badass name for a ship. Just <laughs> by the way. Um, after being ordered to act as a, de as a decoy to draw away Argentine aircraft from other ships at San Carlos Bay. A number of other British ships were, just, were damaged, but not lost, and there were a number of near misses. But the most controversial is the attack on Invincible. So on May 30th, two Argentinian aircraft, one carrying the last available Exocet missile, took off to attack the Invincible. British countermeasures to disguise fleet movement compromised the Argentinian attack, however, and two of the escort planes were shot down and no damage was caused to any British vessel. During the war, however, Argentina claimed to have damaged the Invincible and continues to do so to this day, despite there never being any evidence of such damage ever <laughs> being produced or uncovered. So... It's controversial in the sense that Argentina still claims that they hit the Invincible, but they didn't. 
Sorry, Argentina. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you that. Uh, on May 27th, until the next day, the British paratroopers approached and attacked Darwin and Goose Green, which was held by the Argentine 12th Infantry Regiment. The British paratroopers consisted of 500 men and had naval gunfire support from HMS Arrow and artillery support from Eight Commando Battery and the Royal Artillery. After a tough struggle that lasted all night and into the next day, the British won, won the battle. In all, 18, and 18 British and 47 Argentine soldiers were killed. A total of 961 Argentinian troops were taken prisoner. And with a sizable Argentine force at Goose Green out of the way, British forces were now able to break out of San Carlos Beachhead. Meanwhile, the 42 commandos were prepared to move by helicopter to Mount Kent, which is an area five miles west of the capital of Stanley. Unknown to British officers, though, was that the Argentine generals had made plans to try and tie down the British troops in that area. So in a way, they were sort of headed towards a trap, but on May 27th and 28th, the Argentinians sent a transport aircraft loaded with blowpipe surface-to-air missiles and commandos to Stanley. For the next week, the SAS and Mountain and Arctic Warfare Cadre, or MAWC, of the 3rd Commando Brigade waged intense patrol battles with patrols of the Argentine Volunteers 602nd Commando Company under General Aldo Rico. In the end, the British were able to take the high ground, and the Argentinian Air Force carried out several bombing runs against the British troops in the area. The attacks continued, but finally on June 11th, the Royal Marine and Parachute Battalions of 3rd Commando Brigade attacked and captured Mounts Lungden, Harriet, Goat Ridge, and Two Sisters Mountain, ending any Argentine Special Forces plans in winning back control of the Mount Kent area. Which, if you control the high ground, you control everything, so... That was a really big loss for the Argentinians. Ultimately, both sides suffered really heavy losses in the battles, but yeah, this was a really important win for the British. The second phase of the attacks began on June 13th, and the momentum of the initial assault was maintained. Two paratroopers with support from the Blues and Royals captured Wireless Ridge uh, with the loss of three British and 25 Argentine lives, and the 2nd Battalion, Scots Guards, captured Mount Tumbledown, which cost 10 British and 30 Argentine lives. A simultaneous special forces raid by the SP SAS and SBS in fast boats to attack the oil tanks in Stanley Harbor was beaten off by anti-aircraft guns. But with the last natural defense line at Mount Tumbledown breached, the Argentine town defenses of Stanley began to falter. A number of positions were found abandoned by the British forces when they made daylight attacks on Mount Williams. Finally, on June 14th, a ceasefire was declared, and Thatcher announced the commencement of surrender negotiations. The commander of the Argentine garrison in Stanley, Brigade General Mario Menendez surrendered to Major General Jeremy Moore the next day. And the Falklands, the British again. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so the end of the conflict in Argentina was not so great. Needless to say, the loss of the Falklands was a massive blow to the Argentina and more specifically the Junta. 649 Argentines were killed with 1,657 wounded and 11,313 captured. In total, ship losses were one cruiser, one submarine, four cargo ships, two patrol boats, and one thrawler. In the air, 25 helicopters, 35 fighters, three bombers, four cargo planes, and 25 coin aircraft, aircraft which are counterinsurgency, and nine armed trainers were shot down. The Junta also began to lose control over their censorship laws. Breaking with the Junta's crackdown on war coverage, newspapers across Argentina republished news of the surrender to the British. Locals reacted with shock as they believed up until that point that Argentina had been succeeding. Demonstrators filled the streets of Buenos Aires once again. Instead of fleeing in fear of riot, police and soldiers, demonstrators full-on clashed with them. 
Large bonfires were lit across the city with Plaza de Mayo practically engulfed. Rioters even tried to storm the presidential palace. Journalists were also targeted as they were seen as deceivers and complicit with the junta for giving false information to the populace. As a result of the unrest, Galtieri canceled a scheduled balcony speech and instead addressed the nation via television. On June 18th, with the civil unrest intensifying, Galtieri was forced to resign from office. He was then ushered to a secure location in the Argentine countryside for his protection, as is the official explanation. <laughs> Alfredo Oscar Saint-Jean briefly took the presidency until Ronaldo Bignon took office. Prior to his presidency, Bignon was an unknown figure acting behind the scenes and out of the public eye. The fact an unknown person was made president did not escape the eyes of the populace, and it became clear the junta was in a fragile state. To further fuel this notion, a Buenos Aires newspaper printed the ar an article stating, quote, The process of national reorganization is dead, buried under an incredible heap of tangles and controversies and choked by a chaos infinitely greater than that which usually precedes classic coups against constitutional governments. The military regime is dead. Which, you know, when you got a newspaper saying that, despite strict censorship laws and whatnot, you know that you know that your regime is fucked. Yep. Benon attempted to muster on for another 16 months. This only served to provide opposition parties time to organize and rally support. Now not having to operate underground, the parties were able to be visible to the population, hold rallies, and make public de denouncements of the junta without restriction. Or little restriction, at least. When the Argentine POWs were eventually returned, they detailed their experiences to their families and friends. In turn, these stories reached the Argentine media, who quickly recounted these stories in defiance over their previous gag order on the conflict. Accusations of corruption and brutality, which is all true, let's be honest, yeah. flooded the front pages across the country, further inciting public outcry. One notable story told was how monetary donations to provide chocolates to the Argentine soldiers on the Falklands had been instead kept by the man in charge of the transportation, while the chocolates remained in storage. In another claim, Argentine soldiers had their rations withheld by their superiors. When one starving soldier had attempted to steal food for himself and his comrades, he was stripped naked and flogged. Things came to a head for Benon when, on December 16th, a large demonstration in Buenos Aires' Plaza de Mayo led to clashes between soldiers and demonstrators, during which one protester died. It was after this the regime finally agreed to hold democratic elections scheduled for October 30th, 1983. The Junta spent the next year destroying as many documents as they could to hide their orchestration of the quote-unquote disappearances. However, Buenos Aires police chief Ramon Camps publicly revealed the Junta's crimes and acknowledged the 30,000 disappeared were in fact dead. In an attempt to save himself and others from prosecution, Benon used his presidential powers to declare a blanket amnesty for those involved. This was, of course, widely condemned. The election saw a turnout of over 80%, with the Union Civica Radical candidate Raul Alfonsón winning the presidency and the UCR gaining the most seats in the parliament. The Peronist Judicialist Party came in a close second. 
Despite the amnesty, a judge ordered the arrest of several high-ranking junta members for their role in the Dirty War. Among the arrests were Benon and Galtieri. Two were eventually sentenced to life imprisonment, Jorge Videla and Emilio Messera. Galtieri and three others were acquitted, though later found guilty in a court-martial for mismanagement of the war. All received life sentences, with the highest being 17 years and the lowest at four and a half years. Sadly, during the presidency of Peronist politician Carlos Menem, many who were tried and sentenced were given a pardon. Since then, President Nestor Kirchner obtained a ruling by the Supreme Court to allow the extradition of junta officials for crimes against humanity charges in 2003. The full stop laws were repealed by the Congress the same year. Furthermore, in 2005, the Supreme Court ruled the 1986 and 1987 laws which protected military officers against criminal prosecution were unconstitutional and struck down. I mean, as much as I say like Peronism still causes a lot of issues in Argentina today, so does the military junta. Mm. They're still living not only with the ghost of Peron, but also the ghost of this military junta because there's still quite a few officials who were not prosecuted many of them have since died without facing prosecution it's yeah it's unfortunate so now the current situation i'll briefly go through this since 2002 with the passage of the british overseas territory act this granted the falklands along with south georgia and the south sandwiches with british overseas territory status so it's kind of like they're part of britain but they're autonomous of britain yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, they, so they, they're, the Falklands have control over, like, uh, other British overseas, they have control, like, they have their own legis, like, their own government, like, local government that can, that they have certain devolved powers to them, but things like defense and foreign policy and trade and shit like that are uh, run by Britain. Also, British overseas territories have, con- have a fair bit of control over their own natural resources. Yeah. Which is, you know, pretty good deal. <laughs> On January 1st, 2009, an updated constitution of the Falklands came into effect. Yeah, that's the other thing. British overseas territories have their own, like, constitution to them. For the most part. Uh, it came into effect, replacing the one implemented in 1985. This established a legislative assembly on the island, better defined role of the executive council, and diminished powers from the governor. It's granting further autonomy to the Falklands. The signing of the 2007 Lisbon Treaty of the EU, which rat- which basically created the EU as we see it today. Part of it was a ratification of UK sovereignty over the Falklands, meaning the EU itself recognizes the Falklands as British. Between March 10th and 11th, 2013, a referendum was held on the island that saw a 92% turnout to answer the question of the Fal- if the Falklanders wished to remain in overseas territory or not. voted in favor and only three voted against. And as said by international observers, which is, you know, standard for these type of things, it was legit. Yeah. It was legit. I don't care what the dissenters say. It was legit. Okay. Like if I, if it wasn't legit, I would absolutely be saying it it wasn't because like, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I don't care what people say. I'm not a British, like, I am not a British subject, people, but it was legit. I've generally gotten the impression people favor being. Yeah. I, the thing is, is that that then Argentine president 
uh, Christina Kirchner lambasted the results, equating the Falklanders as squatters, quote, illegally occupying a building, unquote, which is not really fair. No. I wouldn't consider it fair. No. Like, mo- most of the Falklanders, because, like, the thing is, most of the Falklanders were born in the, fa- uh, like, on, on the, the Falklands. Islands, they, yeah. the, like, mo- I'm pretty sure most have never been to Britain. I don't know. So, at any rate, it's safe to say the UK will never give up its claim on the Falklands due to the discovery of oil on the uh, in um, in the waters area. surrounding them. There are currently four areas of exploration, with oil discovered as recently as May 2015 in the Isabel Deep. Argentina has lobbied the Decolonization Committee of the UN every single year since 1964. The committee has vocalized its frustration with the continued lobbying, stating they ignored the Falklanders' right to self-determination. Basically, what I'm getting is that the decolonization committee are just like, Argentina, come on. Bro. <laughs> uh, they're just, they're just like, they got, there's, this is going to sound bad, but it's true. Like, there are a lot more pressing yeah. disputes in the world that need. In particular, because the Falkland, the Falklanders themselves aren't, pushing for independence aren't pushing for you know no. like they're not trying to seek independence of britain or anything like that so in no. a way like from the from the decolonization committee's perspective they're going to be like well the people on the island themselves are like not also not really fighting for this so like, yeah and like <laughs> this i'm not lambasting argentina but unfortunately no. argentina's economy and yeah um it's 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 a fairly bit it's, i mean it's a lot more stable now than it was under the junta yeah. Or Perón. <laughs> yeah. Well, just just after Perón's death. But the, the problem is, it's like economically, it's not the most stable. It's Politically, it's not the most stable. I feel like taking on something like governing the Falklands would just further destabilize Argentina, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. Like, it would, be, it would just be a more of a economic... I also wonder logistically just how it would work after, like, you know, their president and, like, went and insulted all the Falklanders. It's like... Like, okay, say Britain actually did yield and we're like, you know what, Argentina? Fuck it. It's yours. Yeah. Here you go. Like, what does Argentina actually expect out of the people who live there? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because I was actually looking through this. Britain actually cannot just say it's yours. No, they can't. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, is because of uh, there's that, there's, um, you, I'll, I'll explain it. Like, um, UN Resolution 1514, which it's partially, it, it mostly affirms to the right to decolonization but part of it there's a clause that it has it recognizes the region's right to Mm self-determination so if a region does not want like a majority of the people do not want to separate or decolonize like they they are allowed to remain so since 1994 argentina's constitution has included its claims of sovereignty over the malvinas south georgia and south sandwich islands considering them all fundamental territories of argentina as far as they are concerned, they are part of the Tierra del Fuego province, along with a chunk of Antarctica, but that's, as CGP Grey would say, that's a story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> I love CGP Grey. Just, just, just to confirm, I love CGP Grey. I just love making fun of him saying that all the time. Uh, the general global consensus is that the Falklands dispute, uh, UN General Assembly Resolution 1514, which I explained, the Falklanders state that they want to be remain a part of the UK, and thus that answers the question that yeah, th- that's who it belongs to. Because in the end, really, all that matters is like the people who are there. 
Yeah. Like here's here's like I guess um, the moral of the story is like it matters to the people who live there. You can call them squatters all you fucking want. Yeah. And like I get it. Like the British colonized it and basically yeah. br- brought their people over there. Yeah. But you also got to remember the settlement of the island was a problem in yeah. and of itself. But but, but you also got to remember before like it, they were discovered, nobody like pra- practically nobody lived there. There was no government on that island. Yeah. Um, it was ba- it was just a bunch of penguins and at one point feral cows, but the thing is is like and like also like even the Argentinian claims base are based back. Well, I mean a lot of it is based back is because like you look at where the Falklands are compared to where Argentina or where Britain is, and you're just kind of like okay, well duh. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a little rich for Britain to be claiming islands like thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands of miles. Yeah, away. and I'm also gonna lambast a couple of um, pretty awful rhetoric i saw online someone just simply asked what countries i was looking for which countries like which countries support argentina's claim Mm -hmm. uh the only one i could really definitively find for sure was uh the people's republic of china interesting probably russia as well i'm not sure but like uh it was just it's just a simple question nobody fucking answered the question the, the the top answer, quote unquote, this is on Quora, by the way, was someone's like, it doesn't matter. It's British. Like, like look at the Falklands. They're like 1,500 miles away from Buenos Aires. And I'm just thinking, why are you using that as an argument? Because with that logic, they're like 120,000 miles from Britain. Yeah, that's Pro- probably not that much, but I don't know. Oh, well, Can't remember the, na- the at the top of my head. It's like that's only the distance to Buenos Aires to uh, to Argentina. Argentina, like, you got me saying it now. Argentina yeah. proper, it's it, not that far. It's yeah, not. It's like I don't know. It's probably like, less than. I think it's less than a thousand, but more yeah. than like five hundred. Yeah, it's but it's pretty close. It's like you get there reasonably yeah. regularly from yeah easily. And I mean, like I get it. It's like Britain brought people over. Like they have a tendency yeah. to do that, but. It, but it's a different um, case because unlike other places that they colonize, it was already uninhabited. It was un- for the most mostly part. it was like vastly uninhabited. Like even the gauchos that were there were not there for a long time. Like they didn't they didn't inhabit that place. No. They would they would go there. there and then they would leave. Yeah, like yeah. during the winter time kind of thing. Yeah, there's so, one of the very few instances of British colonization where it actually like didn't impact people in the place they colonized because no. there were no people. No, and like the Falklanders. <laughs> are happy they have their own identity they're fine they don't i mean they see themselves more as british than they are argentinian but they imagine they see themselves as falklanders yes not absolutely as either british they, or argentinian. They, they they most of the people on that island like 59 percent, call themselves falklander yeah they don't call themselves there's like a small percentage that call themselves british and then there's like an even smaller percentage that call themselves argentinian mm-hmm. and apparently even the argentinians who live on the island are not super committed to that no like i mean you only had three vote in that referendum against yeah. it and uh there's i the last like i don't know that at the top of my head but there are more than three argentinians living on the falklands yeah i guess my uh, what i'm trying to say is that my i lean a bit more in favor of britain but at the same time like this whole bickering back and forth of whether it is is a distraction to like Bigger problems. Bigger, much bigger I guess problems. I also find the claim, like, I don't necessarily come down on the side of the British. I ultimately come down on the side of whatever the Falklanders want they should be able to have. Yeah, that's... At the end of the day, like, that... 
I think that they know they can't be an independent country. They're just too small. Yeah. I think but, I, should, I should clarify. Sorry, I should clarify. I, the reason why I lean more towards the British is because during the time of this war, Argentina was under an extremely brutal junta. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the thing for me, too, with Argentina trying to. Argentina trying to claim. We just lost the, all of our Argentinian listeners. Sorry, Argentina. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I keep doing you dirty like this. Um. <laughs> I guess the thing that's ironic or kind of rich to me about Argentina applying to like the decolonization committee for wanting to get control of the Falklands is that it's like, so you just want them to like, ultimately they just want to colonize the Falklands themselves. And like, it's kind of what that feels like to me, I guess. Yeah. And it's just kind of, to me, that just sticks out as being kind of a hilarious kind of like really urgent. Okay. But at the end of the day, I think, yeah, I fall on the side of like, the Falklanders should just be able to do what they want. Yeah, like, I, I and I completely agree. And if agree. they're happy being governed mostly by the like by the British, then fine, like whatever. Yeah. Uh, in terms of de- in terms of even just decolonization arguments in the world, as far as like, there's way bigger ones for. I mean, Canada has much more need to decolonize than the Falklands. Yeah, <laughs> and like the thing is, it's like the other thing is like. This is my message to our Argentinian listeners: the your leaders using like. I haven't heard anything recently, but like these people in power in Argentina that are using the Falklands rhetoric are only attempting to distract you away from their own faults and flaws. I I get the sense a little bit that the Falklands, to be honest, the Falkland War was honestly like a convenient political move by both. Well, it wasn't intentional on the part of Thatcher. She benefited from it. But I do think that the same thing could be said for the Argentine junta, that they sort of just needed to like consolidate, continue consolidating power and yeah. like remaining at the top. And it's, well, I mean, it's different, but still. there's, there's like, there's this, there's a thing within history. It's like, there's two, two things that are guaranteed to ruin a, a regime. Uh, that's economic hardship or losing a war. And Argentina is like, why do we just do both? Why do we just do both? <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say Argentina, but the, the, the junta, junta was like, why don't we do both? Let's try doing both. But it's just, I get the sense in a way that they wa- they went into this war to try and stay popular. Well, not popular, but just again, like stay at the gain top. Popularity. Gain popularity. Stay at the top. Yeah. Then it, they fucked it up. But didn't really work for But them. Thatcher at the same time went in unpopular and it ended up saving her. So it's kind of just funny to me that this war basically just feels like a PR campaign from both sides. And it kind yeah. of, the aftermath of it still feels like a PR campaign from both sides. Yeah. At the end of the day i don't think either side actually cares about the falklanders yeah. that much and the truth is to Ar- be honest argentina your leaders today are way better than yes. they were before it is weird that like peronism has is still kind of a thing it very much is a thing like th- how divisive it is it's literally split into two different camps now yeah so but i'll well we can talk we'll go there talk all the i guess the thing that i just find that. interesting is i honestly don't it does feel very much just like continued sort of PR and propaganda on both sides, but the Falklanders don't matter to either of them. Like, yeah. I think they do at the end of the day, but at the end, I also, when it comes to it, I get this vibe that like what the actual Falklanders kind of want doesn't really matter to either Britain or Argentina. No, but I mean... <laughs> Our Britain's not even fighting that hard for it no, right now. Well, they, they, they do, I think they but. actually are, but the thing is, is that the Falklanders... Mm-hmm are bothered. Well, that's just it too. They're not trying to fight for anything. No. But also like uh, they just it feels very much like people are arguing around them about what they are and who they should be and they're just like eh. we just want to do it. They like, just, just want to do their thing. We just live here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of them are We just live here at the end of the world. Yeah, I like, think <laughs> most of them work in the fish fishing industry, probably a fair bit of them work in the petroleum industry now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just like 
yeah. it's, that that's basically i guess the moral of the, of the story is like yeah it's it in a way boils down to what the will of the people who are there on want. some level you could almost file this war under the silly wars category because it is kind of silly in lots of ways but it also does have very real like it's not silly but yeah. like to be clear like i'm not trying to to devalue like what this war was but it's kind of just one of those like random kind of like the moral of the story is that, like the the people on the island themselves are kind of just like didn't want any of this <laughs> yeah or didn't really care about any of this they're kind of like uh we just want to exist on our islands in the middle of this South yeah Atlantic. and if anything this invasion only further push them towards supporting the yeah. like Britain. Like at first they were kind of neutral and they're just living their lives like people do. Yeah. And now they're just like, we want to say, we really, but the British really also didn't reinvade us. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and like, um, it's like, it's had some really interesting effects. The Falklands dispute, because like, for example, when uh, Russia invaded Crimea mm. um, and held that quote unquote referendum, mm. because I do not believe it was legit. No. Uh, Christina Kirshner did not condemn. He, she neither supported nor condemned the invasion, but she lambasted the countries that condemned the referendum, saying, "You guys are a bunch of hypocrites because you're going because you're always claiming the Falklands like right to, to self determination, and yet you're denying Crimea's." And like I've heard this argument before. It's like, oh well, how can you be for one group's independence and against? another and it's like because it's not black and white that, vac that argument makes sense in a vacuum but that's not really how the world yeah works. it's not how it works because ultimately there was no yeah there's no real free referendums in russia ever it's like i support certain independence groups i'm not going to go into specifics but i do support certain independence groups around the world but i don't uh for example support like uh quebec independence like, and I have my reasons for not supporting it, and the reasons for the reasons for me not supporting it, are, and for, the, for me supporting other countries are different. Yeah, it's because not everyone's claim to independence is as valid as someone else's, I guess necessarily. Like yeah. that sounds horrible to say, but I think the grounds for like, so, and it's subjective. I mean, the reasons we support groups are ultimately up to us, like our own personal thresholds for what we support, I guess. But like to some extent. Like, yeah, so for us to support one group's claim, like one group's claim, but not another's, you, doesn't make us a hypocrite. No, it means that you feel that there was more extenuating circumstances that, or context or something in the situation to make you want to support yeah. something versus not support the other side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like I think her argument, again, like is, it's valid in a vacuum, but it's not necessarily like how the world works. Yeah, and that basically explains my reasoning for still calling it the Falklands and supporting the Falklanders, right? To, like, this, uh, Honestly, I am supporting the, the right to self Until the Falklanders want to be called something else again. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Anyhow, that's. Uh, that was the Falklands War. That was the Falklands uh, War. We're taking a high. Yeah. After this? A little. Uh, well, yeah, again, we're taking a hiatus. At least until, like, I guess we should explain, but we could do that in other nonsense coming up. But basically, to give you a gist, the whole. Like. <laughs> I've retconned the last couple episodes. Like, this was supposed to be season five. I've yeah. retconned that, so we're still in season four. This is the last episode of season four. Because while we were on our hiatus, we decided to completely revamp what we were planning on doing for season five. We kind of want to try something different. Um, 
we'll go through more details, but you know how we did that themed season on, season on communism, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. We're going to try and do something kind of similar as far as just having a theme yeah. for a season rather than jumping around a bit. So, And it's not a general like yeah. overlook of like these different, like different, like we did with it's the going, different countries. This is going involved. to be more specific and we're just going to play around with the format of the podcast a yeah. little bit too. So and we, it goes in a linear style, yeah. but every episode relates to like these events like these like proceeding to this event and then the events it's yeah it's more of a one like singular story versus being kind of a collection of stories under a same theme like we've done before so we just want to take an opportunity to try something new we're kind of trying to expand our own just creativity and yeah and projects so we want to try something new and we think it might be an interesting fun way to tell history from our perspective as well so we're going to work on that but we're going to try and do some other nonsense episodes and we'll we'll explain more what we're actually going yeah to do. we'll do another nonsense probably maybe at the end of the month but don't like probably more closer to june yeah uh lindsay is not going to be here for a bit i won't go into detail but that um i have a job now <laughs> and i don't it's hilarious yeah yeah Rolls reverse yeah it's, it's weird but anyway so um that's part of why like um we haven't recorded in a while because I got this new job and I needed to settle. And our schedules yeah. have just been kind of difficult. And yeah. Um, also, COVID's been a thing still. I mean, we can record remotely, but it's not nearly as much fun. And I don't know. We like hanging out with each other, people. I mean, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I will be starting to release the teasers for. Uh, I made I made some awesome looking fucking graphics. They are very cool for these for these. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for that. And uh, maybe you could try and guess what they are depending on the first teaser it's very vague the first teaser but let's see if you can guess what they are anyway um, that that'll probably i'll probably start releasing those weekly pretty soon yeah and i think we're going to the hiatus this hiatus between like we'll do we'll do some other nonsenses here and there um so that'll keep the feed active but there will be like a longer hiatus because i think we're going to try and actually do the bulk of the research and recording all at once Oh yeah, we're gonna do all of the research before for all the episodes beforehand. Yeah, and then record all the episodes more or less at once, or at least like in in blocks. Yeah, yeah, like before, like basically in blocks. But then once all the recording is done, yeah, they're gonna be like released weekly in a, yeah. in a weekly so format. i guess to just explain our usual format now is we usually start research when we pick a topic, and we'll pick days when we want to record, but we don't typically do like a whole season's worth of research at once. So this break's going to be maybe a little longer than other ones, or at least it might feel like that, but that's what we're doing um, just as a heads up. But we're going to try and keep the feed active with some other nonsense and yeah. and other things like that. Maybe re-air some old episodes that, um, you know. Yeah, so. I might, I want to do some more Museum of Controversy episodes and maybe release them for free just yeah. so people get an idea because we're still trying to kind of work Apologies around Apologies to the our Patreon thing. It's yeah. been kind of a mess, but... Um, <laughs> We love uh, you guys, though. Yeah, so I'll, I'll my I kind of want to release a couple episodes that I have an idea for for free. Lindsay will most likely be the um, uh, the co-host for that one instead of us having a guest because that's another thing. It's hard to kind of find a guest right now. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're gonna do all the bulk of the of the we're gonna do all of the research beforehand record everything beforehand and then once everything's recorded and yeah. edited i'll release we'll release it weekly so, so maybe don't expect anything um like panastory wise until probably august yeah it's i would say late summer early early fall uh so again kind of apologies for that but we appreciate you understanding just because we are we want to try something different and i think that this will actually really 
ultimately benefit you, dear listener, because yeah. we're hoping that it'll be better content. Um, yeah, we're just, I ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a passion project for us. Um, we appreciate all of our patrons and people who do support us, but we do this for fun and because we love it and we want to find ways to always be better and keep keep the love alive for us. We've been at this now for what, almost five years? Yeah, next year will be five and, years, so four years now. Which is pretty wild. And I mean, it's almost the anniversary of when we released... Our first episode. Was it, I th- it was either our first episode or when I released the quote-unquote trailer, the introduction episode. Our first episode sure. came out in June. Trailer came out in May. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, so years. it's it's crazy. So we've been at this for a while and we're just trying to keep things fresh and interesting even just for us and, and trying to grow as, as, as content creators and podcasters because ultimately those are things we want to do outside of this in our real lives as well. So it's just about ultimately like, yeah, like I said, this is a passion project, but also just like us trying to just get better at things. And, and, uh, we appreciate you growing with us and, and sticking with us. And if you ever have questions or concerns or anything you want to talk to us about, we're always available on our social media channels or at our email address at panistoriapodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Always reach out to us. Um, we're happy to answer questions. I think maybe, We'll try and do a mailbag episode or something in the next few months if people have questions about like what's coming up and what we're interested in, just anything. Um, we're going to work on a newsletter. I know we've been saying that for a little while, but we're actually going to finally fucking do it. Um. I mean, we have been doing work on this yes. while we've been on hiatus. Like, don't yeah. get us wrong. It's just been other things, unfortunately. Yeah. I've had to take some priority. Most of what we've been doing is like really focusing on like really seriously thinking on brainstorming i'll be honest we sort of when we launched this podcast we kind of uh well we definitely didn't know what we were doing and there's definitely like some groundwork things that i think we in hindsight maybe wish we would have done or known about before and so now we're just trying to go back and lay those because it's the first four or five years have been really great and we just want to set up for an even better next four or five years and yeah and make this podcast truly really sustainable to keep going over the years. Um, Absolutely. So, we want you guys to continue to love this. Yeah. What we even do. if our listenership continues to stay small, it's yeah. worth it to us. So to continue being better. We want to continue to love <clears throat> doing this. So, I mean, I don't know about, I, I, I don't know about you, Lindsay, but I was definitely like getting with uh, podcast withdrawals. Yeah, I was starting to. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think we can end it there. We'll, we'll explain a lot more in the, uh, in another nonsense. So explain. Uh, expect that expect some interesting photos uh yeah. from Lindsay because my partner to be they're going to be on vacation in belize so we're going to take some some photos at the beach we're going to take kevin on a vacation release him from prison because he's been in jail in my house for a long time uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it's going to be fun so we'll take over the instagram and post some cool photos yeah i it feels good to be back um even though it's again Another, another, another break, but, but again, we'll we'll come out with some yeah uh, other with another. We're gonna least, actually we're gonna try and be a little more up to date on the other nonsense stuff. Yeah, we'll do a couple more at least, and then the, I keep the feet up, and then I'll get some museum of controversies out there just so people can see. Yeah, and I'll better explain why there's like weird different episodes 100%. Than, than the last one. So anyway, and yeah. Um, Thank do you. we need to update the fuckface list after this? Uh, no, I'll save that for when we talk, actually fully talk about Perone. 
because I'll and, talk and more Thatcher. about. I don't know where Thatcher falls. Uh, I Have think that ever... I don't think Thatcher would fall Makes into a fuckface, but she definitely falls into an asshole list. She's one of those people. She's like Reagan and and you know Trump yeah. and those people where it's like I don't know if I want to put you on the fuckface power power rankings, but you're pretty close. Yeah. So for so, so, so. those who don't know, we have the fuckfaces of history list where we put pretty horrible people on there. But aside from that, like I guess the I don't know dishonorable mentions are called yeah. the asshole list. So they're people who we dislike heavily. But I think they, are generally not great people, but don't quite qualify for the fuckfaces list. Yeah, they didn't commit as horrible acts mm-hmm. to deserve this. So like people like Ronald Reagan and... Mm-hmm. While responsible and oversaw many horrible things, wasn't yeah. necessarily directly related to other horrible things that would land him on the list. Yeah. So very close, but not quite. Yeah, and uh, then Huey Long lands on his own list because he's like... we. He's not definitely not on a fuckface list, but we don't know if we want to put him on the asshole list or not. He's a complicated. He's a difficult, <laughs> he's a difficult figure. We really struggle with him. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll update the fuckfaces list another time. So we're good there. Yep. Um With that, I think it's time to wrap up. You know up, what? I Let's guess. put the. F- I'm gonna put. I'm gonna nominate the whole national reorganization. Uh, process, for the fuckface. Fuckface. I'll do that. That's I'll fine. nominate that. We'll. We'll when we, when we come back another, for other nonsense, we'll we'll put it on there. We'll I don't have happen. a... I had a fact. I've lost it because... Yeah, I, I can't remember now. Um, I probably had one and also lost it. So. Yeah, so anyway, sorry for rambling, but we definitely needed to update you guys. You'll get more of an update in the next other nonsense. I think that'll be more of a what we're doing and what we have been doing kind of thing and updating the fuckfigs list. Uh, so yeah, um, I'll keep posting shit. That, uh, that's interesting on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> and yeah, so thank you guys so much. We thank you guys so much for being so patient with us and continuing to um, listen to our podcast, continuing to recommend it to people. Yeah. Like we still went up like uh, almost 2,000 uh, downloads in our hiatus. So yeah. Hopefully we don't have a hiatus that long where we're not releasing anything. Oh, damn, we're almost at 20,000 total downloads. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So, yeah, thank you guys so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, we're going to leave you, I guess, I think with the Argentinian national anthem, just to be fair. Yeah. You heard, you heard real Britannia at the beginning, but so here we are. <laughs> All right. All right, thank you so much. My name is Jonah. I'm Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day. <laughs>